Today, the U.S. Supreme Court heard arguments in a critical environmental case. Lawyers for a group of conservative states and businesses are trying to block a federal rule designed to limit more ozone pollution. It's Wednesday, February 21st, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, a man who was shot dead in Spain last week was believed to be a Russian helicopter pilot who defected to Ukraine because he opposed the war. Investigators want to know if Moscow was involved in his death. And activists in California have been pushing the state to provide reparations for descendants of enslaved African Americans. And they say the state continues to come up short. When we are not discussing compensation, like what are we really discussing? More coming up on WBUR. The time now is 4.01. Live from NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Singh. President Biden's younger brother tells members of Congress that the president was not involved in his business deals. Today, James Biden answered questions in a closed-door deposition as part of an impeachment inquiry House Republicans launched against the president. Meanwhile, as NPR's Ryan Lucas reports, new information has surfaced about Alexander Smirnov, a former FBI informant with ties to Russian intelligence, who's been charged with making false bribery claims about the Bidens. We certainly saw Republicans touting these allegations about uh, an alleged bribery scheme uh, involving Burisma, the Ukrainian energy company, and the Bidens, uh, allegations that now, according to prosecutors, were entirely made up by Smirnov. Um, Now, the interesting thing, I think, is that Smirnov's prosecution makes the Republicans in, in impeachment case weaker. Uh, it wasn't strong to begin with, but the indictment mm-hmm. nevertheless has not made House Republicans back down at all uh, in their push to impeach uh, President Biden. NPR's Ryan Lucas. The University of Alabama at Birmingham says it is pausing in vitro fertilization treatments as it assesses the legal consequences of a state Supreme Court ruling last week. Alabama's highest court ruled Friday that frozen eggs and embryos created through IVF are considered children under state law. The head of Boeing's Trouble 737 MAX program has left the company. NPR's Joel Rose reports the leadership shakeup comes amid intense scrutiny of Boeing's quality control after a mid-air panel blowout last month. Boeing executive Ed Clark, who was in charge of the 737 MAX program, is out. His departure was announced in a memo to the company's staff from the head of Boeing's commercial airplanes division. Boeing has faced tough questions about quality control after a door plug panel blew off a 737 MAX 9 jet in midair. Clark oversaw the factory in Renton, Washington, where that plane was assembled. It's part of a broader leadership shakeup at Boeing, ahead of a planned meeting between CEO Dave Calhoun and Mike Whitaker, the head of the FAA. Whitaker traveled to Renton to tour the Boeing 737 plant and meet with FAA employees on the ground. Joel Rose, NPR News, Washington. Gasoline prices are holding steady after a significant increase last week. NPR's Camila Dominoski reports a refinery outage played a major role in pushing prices higher. Gasoline prices were holding remarkably steady through the winter, but a few weeks ago, they started to climb. Prices at the pump usually go up in the spring, that's normal, but it's early yet for that to be the reason. The biggest culprit? An outage at BP's Whiting, Indiana refinery. That's the largest refinery in the Midwest, producing enough gasoline each day for 7 million cars. It lost power on February 1st, and while power is back, the refinery is still working to recover from the outage and restart. Camila Dominoski, NPR News. The Dow closed up 48 points. You're listening to NPR News. 
A satellite credited with revolutionizing researchers' understanding of the Earth system is now back on this planet in pieces. The European Space Agency says the ERS-2 came crashing down over the North Pacific Ocean today, nearly 30 years after it was launched. It says the satellite provided invaluable long-term data on Earth's land surfaces, ocean temperatures, ozone layer, and polar ice extent. Well, in spite of Barbie's success, only 30% of the top 100 films last year featured a female character as the center of the plot. NPR's Ned Ulibi has more on a new study released today by the University of Southern California. A-list actress Salma Hayek bucked all the trends in 2023. $60,000? In the movie Magic Mike's Last Dance, Hayek played a wealthy woman who propositions a male exotic dancer. Then she goes into business with him. It was one of the top 100 movies of last year, and it made Salma Hayek one of only three women over the age of 45 to have a leading role in one of them. Not as a supporting actor, but as central to the story. The others were Cocaine Bear and My Big Fat Greek Wedding 3. Hayek was the only woman of color over the age of 45 to lead a movie, and she put Magic Mike's Last Dance into the only 7% of the top 100 movies last year that starred a Latino actor in a leading role. Neto Ulibi, NPR News. The Nasdaq closed on 49 points. The S&P was up six. The Dow closed up 48 points. I'm Lakshmi Singh, NPR News. I'm Lisa Mullins. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's now up to the Governor's Council whether to approve Governor Moore Healy's nominee to the state's highest court. The council heard today from supporters of Gabrielle Wolohojan. She served on the state's appeals court since 2008. She's also a former long-term romantic partner of Governor Healy. Today, the governor told the council that did not play a role in her decision. As I have said in the past, a personal relationship and my personal relationship with Judge Wolohojan should not deprive the people of Massachusetts of an outstanding SJC justice. Wolohojan said she's aware of the optics of being nominated by a former partner. She noted the support her nomination received, though, from her colleagues in the judicial system. And I realized that their trust and support, that if I were elevated, they would be happy to have me review their work, struck me as the greatest trust an endorsement that I could receive. The governor's council could vote on the nomination as soon as next week. 20 Boston-area landlords and real estate brokers are facing a housing discrimination lawsuit. The complaint was filed today by the nonprofit Housing Right Initiative. It claims the defendants failed to accept housing vouchers from low-income renters. That practice is illegal under the state's anti-discrimination law. Aaron Carr is executive director of the initiative. He says the defendants represent thousands of housing units around the city. We want this lawsuit to send a message to every real estate company in Boston, in Massachusetts, that if you are discriminating against families with housing vouchers, the question of whether you will be caught is not a matter of if, but when. The group is asking the court to force brokers to set aside units for low-income renters and increase oversight. Drivers in Massachusetts racked up more than one million traffic violations last year. Congratulations. That's a nearly 40 percent increase since 2020. State data show the uptick is mostly because law enforcement is giving out more warnings. Those warnings account for more than half the violations. The state report did not give insight as to why warnings have increased so much. And there's a mess right now on the red line of the T. Shuttle buses are replacing 
fixing trains between Park Street and Harvard Square. The T posted on social media that's because of earlier fire department activity in the Kendall Square station. No word right now on when regular service might resume. 38 degrees in Boston, another beautiful afternoon. Some clouds roll in tonight, a bit milder than it has been overnight, about 30 for a low. Tomorrow the sun's back, highs could break 40 degrees, then we could see some rain move in for Friday. Again, 38 now in Boston at 408. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. In a few minutes, we will take you to Spain, where a man who was recently found riddled with bullets and run over by his own car may have been a Russian helicopter pilot who defected to Ukraine. But first, we're going to start this hour with news from the Supreme Court. Today, the justices heard arguments in a big environmental case. Lawyers for businesses and a group of red states are trying to block a federal rule designed to limit ozone pollution. The Biden administration and a group of other states say that those limits help save lives. NPR's Carrie Johnson is back from the Supreme Court where she was listening in and joins us now to explain this case. Hey, Carrie. Hi, Elsa. So tell us more about this federal rule. Like, what does it specifically do? It's called the good neighbor rule, and that's because it's designed to protect the health of people in states where pollution flows downwind across state lines. That can be hundreds of miles away from the pipelines or smokestacks that are emitting those chemicals. The Environmental Protection Agency issued the rule last year, but it's being challenged by Ohio, Indiana, and West Virginia, along with companies and trade groups. They have a lot of complaints. Mostly, they say the rule was supposed to cover 23 states, but right now it covers only about half of them because of different lawsuit lawsuits around the country. Wow. Okay. So how did the Biden administration defend this so-called good neighbor plan? <laughs> it's not just the Biden administration and the Solicitor General's office. This is really a dispute among states, states with high levels of pollution and states where some of the chemicals float and where people are breathing smog. Mm. Here's Judith Vale, who argued for New York and those downwind states. She said for all the complaints, this rule is in force in a lot of places and that it's working. And the rule right now continues to provide substantial and meaningful benefits to the downwind sources. And that's because upwind pollution is not evenly distributed as it goes downwind. So the downwind states that generally get a lot of pollution from the 11 states in the rule now still stand to get a lot of benefits. Vale says it's not just about health benefits for people in places like New York or Connecticut or Wisconsin. By limiting pollution from these red states, it's easier for the other states to meet their own air quality standards. Right. Okay, so I also understand that this case comes from what's called the emergency docket, which is something we've talked a lot about in the past few years. How did that part of the proceedings come into play at the arguments this morning? Yeah, it took up a huge part of the arguments, Elsa. This really is only the third time in about 50 years that the justices heard arguments in a case at this early a stage. The lower appeals court has not ruled on the substance of this dispute. Ohio and the businesses raced to the Supreme Court by arguing they were suffering irreparable harm. Basically, they talk about the cost of permitting and complying with the good neighbor rule. Several of the liberal justices raised questions about that today, though. Here's Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson. 
And what I'm a little concerned about is that really your argument is just boiling down to we think we have a meritorious claim and we don't want to have to follow the law while we're challenging it. And I don't understand why every single person who is challenging a rule doesn't have that same uh, set of circumstances. Another justice, Elena Kagan, said the burden is really on the red states to prove they need to pause the rule now. And that's a lot of hoops to jump through, she said. Okay, and I understand that this case is still at an early stage, but did you get any hint from the justices whether they think this EPA rule is reasonable? It wasn't clear from the questions today where all of the justices stood, but Justice Brett Kavanaugh shared a lot about his thinking. He said he thought both the upwind and downwind states were suffering harm. Both sides in the case made arguments about the public interest. Over the past two years, the EPA has lost a lot at the Supreme Court in high-stakes litigation, and the justices have been skeptical in recent history. That is NPR's Carrie Johnson. Thank you so much, Carrie. My pleasure. The Biden administration is worried about a national security threat posed by cranes at U.S. ports. Yes, cranes, you know, the huge machines that hoist goods off ships so they can be transported and sold around the country. Well, these cranes were made in China. I'm going to let our cybersecurity correspondent, Jenna McLaughlin, pick up the thread from here. Hey, Jenna. Hey. So what is the problem with these cranes? So according to the White House, there are over 200 cranes in U.S. ports that were manufactured in the People's Republic of China. That's actually the vast majority, nearly 80 percent of cranes. Uh, According to Admiral Jay Van, who's part of the Coast Guard Cyber Command, those ship-to-shore cranes specifically could be vulnerable to Chinese exploitation, particularly because they can be operated remotely. The Coast Guard is going to be inspecting all of those cranes. They're about halfway done. Uh, Then they'll be requiring minimum standards for security compliance. For broader context, the U.S. national security officials have really been concerned about Chinese hackers infiltrating critical infrastructure. They're trying to get an advantage if there was a war or a conflict in the region. Uh, These officials say that Chinese hackers have been burrowing into U.S. infrastructure for the past five years or so. Okay, so I said the Biden administration is worried about this. What are they doing about it? They're doing a couple things. Besides the specific effort targeting the threat to the cranes, there's a new executive order. It essentially gives the Coast Guard more power over the ports. Now they'll be able to preemptively step in and investigate potential cyber threats to U.S. vessels or respond if there's an attack. The Coast Guard's also putting out proposed minimum guidelines on cybersecurity standards, as well as requirements for reporting cyber attacks, which is modeled off safety requirements. The White House says that cyber attacks could pose as big a threat to the port as storms, for example. They'll get feedback on those guidelines from the public before those actually go into effect. The government's also investing $20 billion into new secure technology at the ports over the next five years, which could be used to build cranes and other technology in America rather than relying on these ones built in China. And and Jenna, I know, I mean, port security has been a a priority going back to 9-11. Did something new just happen that is prompting all this concern in this executive order now? Yeah. So like I mentioned, U.S. national security officials have been really scared about the Chinese hacking campaigns into U.S. infrastructure. The first example that they revealed was about a year ago when a Chinese hacking group they call Volt Typhoon had broken into U.S. infrastructure in Guam, which has important military significance based on its location in the Pacific. They haven't given us too many more specific details, but they've said they found these hackers in other places like U.S. communication networks and other critical infrastructure. 
Meanwhile, there's other examples. You know, a major Japanese port was recently hit by a criminal cyber attack. Hackers held it for ransom for two whole days and shipments were totally halted. White House Cybersecurity Advisor Ann Neuberger explained why the ports are so important during a call with reporters last night. She said that the ports pump $5.4 trillion into the American economy. That's over 90% of overseas trade. And the ports are also vital for airlift capabilities for the military. If there was a major disruption at the ports, even short term, it could be disastrous. Huh. And so in the meantime, what's going to happen to all these cranes? Yeah. So unlike how the U.S. government has had this big campaign to get rid of Chinese technology like Huawei from our communications infrastructure, in this case, they aren't planning on getting rid of the cranes. The White House seems to think that it's a risk that they can manage. But the investment part of this package will allow them to put money into more U.S. manufactured technology in the future, just so we're not relying so heavily on these vulnerable cranes. NPR cybersecurity correspondent Jenna McLaughlin. Thank you, Jenna. Thank you. A man shot dead near Alicante in Spain last week is believed to have been a Russian helicopter pilot who defected to Ukraine last year. Ukrainian intelligence has since confirmed his death. Miguel Macias reports from Spain. This all started with the call from a neighbor to the police. The neighbor at the beginning, he thought that the man had been hit by a car. Jose Bautista is an investigative journalist based in Madrid. The Spanish civil guard arrived at the scene and confirmed that a man had been shot to death on the ramp of the community garage of an apartment building in the seaside resort of Villa Hoyosa. At the beginning, they thought it was a gangster story. They thought he was from Ukraine. Bautista says the Spanish civil guard could not confirm officially the identity of the dead man, but... We had access to different police sources who confirmed that the murder man is actually Maxim Kushminov. Maxim Kushminov. Last August, Kushminov flew a Russian helicopter into Ukrainian territory and handed himself in. But this was no act of improvisation. Ukrainian intelligence said the defection was the result of a six-month operation. This is Kuzminov speaking at a press conference last September in Ukraine. Kuzminov said he defected because he objected the war. The deal between him and the Ukrainian intelligence involved the reward of half a million dollars, protection for his family, and new documents. He could have stayed in Ukraine, authorities say, but he didn't. Then, last Tuesday, the body of a man who had been shot multiple times to death, then run over by his own car, was found. The car was located later, burned down near the area. Ukrainian intelligence have since confirmed the individual as Maxim Kushminov. There has been no official comment from Moscow, but the head of Russia's intelligence agency told the press, quote, This traitor and criminal became a moral corpse at the very moment when he planned his dirty and terrible crime. Shortly after his defection last year, Russian TV carried a new segment where a special forces officer of the military intelligence made this chilling prediction. The order was received. Its execution is a matter of time. I do trust the work of Guardia Civil. The work of the investigators will somehow clarify what, what exactly happened and who killed this man. That's Jose Bautista again. He says all the signs point to the Russians, but proving who did this may be difficult. The area where Kuzminov lived before he was found dead sits along the Spanish eastern Mediterranean coast and is popular amongst Ukrainian immigrants, many of them refugees from the war. Spain has welcomed more than 180,000 refugees since Russia launched their war against Ukraine. 
The news of Kozhinov's death has shocked the Ukrainian community there. Many of them are now in fear that what seemed like a safe haven in Spain no longer feels that way. Miguel Macias, NPR News, Seville, Spain. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. About half of all adults in Massachusetts know somebody who died from a drug overdose. Coming up in 20 minutes, a RAND Corporation study that shows the sweeping effects of the overdose crisis. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com member FDIC, and Scrub-A-Dub Car Wash. Family-owned since 1966, offering Scrub-A-Dub Unlimited, designed to keep your car Scrub-A-Dub clean anytime you want. The Dow and S&P both had modest gains today, up a little over a tenth of a percent by the final bell. NASDAQ closed lower for a third day. It fell three-tenths of a percent. Bike share company Blue Bikes is trying to lessen the effects of the closure of part of the MBTA's Green Line. The company and the city of Boston are giving $20 credits to riders to rent standard or electric Blue Bikes. The offer is good through March 8th. That's when the T closure will end. The forecast is coming up. WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's Winter Experience, celebrating the evolution of dance with two world premieres. Starts February 22nd. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Comcast Business, helping businesses go further with Internet and phone solutions designed to prepare them for the future. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. Clouds are on tonight, about 30 for a low. Tomorrow's sun's back could break 40 degrees. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies solve food, from employee meal plans to on-site staffing, with corporate accounts, nationwide restaurant coverage, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. From Your Part-Time Controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your Part-Time Controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person, at YPTC.com NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The University of Alabama at Birmingham Health System said today it is pausing in vitro fertilization procedures. That is because the state Supreme Court has ruled that frozen embryos have the same rights as children. So destroying an embryo could have legal consequences. Following this story is WBHM Managing Editor Andrew Yeager. Hey there. Good to be here. Tell me more about this announcement today. Yeah, well, we should start by pointing out that UAB is a major public health care provider in Alabama. So the fact that they're pausing IVF procedures is very significant. It'll affect a lot of people. Um, but that aside, uh, in a statement, UAB says that they're saddened for patients who are trying to use this technology to conceive, but they have to be mindful that patients and doctors could be prosecuted or face lawsuits for what prior to Friday were just standard fertility procedures. Now, they emphasize that they will still do some services, such as uh, retrieving eggs. They just won't fertilize them. Okay. And just walk us through how we got here, how Alabama's uh, state Supreme Court ended up ruling on this. Yeah, this case stems from a, a mobile fertility clinic in a hospital. A patient there somehow got into a storage area where there were frozen embryos. 
took them out of the freezer and dropped them. Three families whose embryos were destroyed in that incident sued under Alabama's wrongful death law. Now, a lower court said that they couldn't do that, but the Alabama Supreme Court in an eight to one ruling said, yes, they could because frozen embryos are people under state law. The ruling used a lot of religious language. It talked about the sanctity of life. Um, it actually referred to the frozen embryos as extra uterine children. Um, but what it didn't do is offer any guidance or any path forward given the wide ranging implications of this decision. It kind of kicked things over to state lawmakers to decide if they wanna make any changes or clarifications to state law. Uh, for instance, who actually is covered by the state wrongful death law. Well, indeed. And speaking of Alabama state lawmakers, what are, what are they saying? How are they reacting to the ruling? Well, we spent today calling lawmakers and really received very little reaction um, from those who did get back to us. We were told either they had no comment or that they wanted to brush up on the subject before they spoke publicly. And that really seems to point to just how sweeping and complicated the fallout from this ruling is. Uh, medical groups, though, have expressed concern. A statement from the American Society for Reproductive Medicine called it a, quote, medically and scientifically unfounded decision. It goes on to say that modern fertility care would be unavailable under the ruling and that the ruling should not go unchecked. And what about just ordinary people? What is the conversation on this today in Alabama? Yeah, it, it's kind of hard to tell. I would say part of that is because it's still sinking in. Uh, people are wrestling with what this may mean. Um, but it's Helpful to remember that overall, Alabama is a state that's very supportive of anti-abortion policies. Uh, in 2018, voters actually amended the state constitution to give rights to fetuses. The state bans abortion at any point in pregnancy. There is no exception for rape or incest. But how those beliefs overlap with, with in vitro fertilization, that really remains to be seen, especially if other clinics decide to pause fertility procedures or even shut down. Uh, there are just a lot of questions that people on multiple sides are trying to sift through and really not much clarity at the moment. Well, thank you today for your reporting. We're grateful. Happy to do it. That is Andrew Yeager with WBHM in Birmingham, Alabama. The condition, often called chronic fatigue syndrome, was neglected for decades, and it still has no proven treatments. Now the results of an ambitious study from the National Institutes of Health are bringing new attention to the condition, and Piers Will Stone reports. Like many patients, Sauna Stella traces her illness back to a cold, in this case bronchitis, that she came down with nearly 10 years ago. Within a month, I was unable to make it really from the sofa to the dining room table. Eventually, she received her diagnosis. MECFS, short for myalgic encephalomyelitis, or chronic fatigue syndrome. Stella resolved to make herself as useful to science as possible. So when she was selected for an intensive study by the NIH, she was all in. The whole thing was pretty tough to do. I mean, after um, the first four or five days, I could only get to testing on a stretcher. A pool of more than 200 patients was painstakingly narrowed down to only 17. The aim was to take the most detailed snapshot ever of the biological underpinnings of the illness. Now the findings are out. It involves the brain, the gut, the immune system, the autonomic nervous system. Dr. Arvindra Nath is at the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke. And the illness itself cannot be explained by deconditioning or psychological factors um, because we excluded 
patients who had those kinds of confounding problems. The research stands out because of how deeply it probes the illness. There were biopsies, hours spent in tightly controlled metabolic chambers. Cutting-edge technology turned up irregularities in the immune system. In spinal fluid, the team found low levels of molecules that regulate the nervous system and link that to cognitive and physical symptoms. It was an amazing study. Dr. Nancy Klimas studies ME-CFS at Nova Southeastern University in Florida. As thorough an evaluation as has ever been delivered (laughs) in any clinical study that I know of in any disease. The NIH team made all its data available, which will provide plenty of fodder for future research. Klima says one key takeaway. That this is a disease that comes from the brain. The study took years to complete. One reason was the COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Lucinda Bateman runs the Bateman Horn Center in Utah, which treats patients with chronic fatigue syndrome. She applauds the work, but notes the limitations. These patients aren't necessarily as sick as many ME-CFS patients. In one experiment, the team used brain imaging to show a certain region was not as active when patients with ME-CFS were completing a physical task. Dr. Anthony Komarov at Harvard Medical School and Brigham and Women's Hospital found this intriguing. It's like they're trying to swim against a current. Komarov says this study also turns up lots of evidence of chronic activation of the immune system. As if the immune system was engaged in a long war against a foreign microbe, a war it couldn't completely win and therefore had to continue fighting. This is one prominent hypothesis, both for chronic fatigue syndrome and long COVID, that there's an antigen, something the immune system can't clear. Maureen Hansen at Cornell University studies this line of evidence that was also seen in the NIH study. She says a chronic infection can lead to inflammation and immune dysfunction, including a problem with part of the immune system known as T-cells. So you have what's called T-cell exhaustion, if you're continuously exposed to an antigen. The study's authors suggest that drugs called checkpoint inhibitors could be tested for ME-CFS. Hansen says future research needs to focus on treatments. It's really imperative to start doing clinical trials for people who have been sick for decades. And she hopes this study brings new urgency. Will Stone, NPR News. WBUR supporters include Stanhope Framers, Back Bay, and Somerville, celebrating 51 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. StanhopeFramers.com. And the Boston Philharmonic, Benjamin Zander, leads Ravel, Berg, and Mahler with violinist Lisa Herstmann, February 24th at Symphony Hall. BostonPhil.org. You follow the news every day on WBUR. But how well do you really know the news? It's time to play the puzzle. One across, digital trash. Five letters south of Ecuador. Play the WBUR crossword puzzle anytime at WBUR.org fun. Five across, biggest toy maker. Four down, rock concert pit. Play the WBUR crossword free every day at WBUR.org fun. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden is here in California this week holding several campaign fundraisers in Los Angeles and San Francisco. It's the first time he's been out with donors since the special counsel report that disparaged the president's age and memory. Here's NPR's Deepa Shivaram. Biden spoke to donors at a fundraiser in Los Angeles and joked about his age as he often does, saying he was 40 times two years old. 
He also criticized former President Trump for not condemning the killing of Alexei Navalny, the outspoken critic of Russian leader Vladimir Putin. It's the first time the president has been out with donors since the special counsel report that commented on the president's age and memory. Biden is holding more fundraisers in San Francisco before returning to Washington Thursday night. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News, Los Angeles. Lawyers for the federal government are a step closer to getting WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange extradited back to the U.S. to face espionage charges. Assange is accused of putting lives at risk when he shared and published secret U.S. military files online in 2010. He's been on the run ever since. Now the 14-year legal saga has made its way to a London courtroom. Here's NPR's Lauren Freyer. Assange's lawyers are arguing against that, though, on three main points. One, they say his case is political, that Assange shamed the U.S. government with its publication of these, with WikiLeaks' publication of this material, and that the U.S. government now has a vendetta against him, and he's not going to get a free and fair trial in the U.S. The second point they're arguing is that Assange is suicidal. Um, He fears the the CIA is trying to assassinate him. That's affected his mental health and also his physical Mm. health. That's NPR's Lauren Freyer. A decision in regards to Assange's extradition is not expected until March at the earliest. On Wall Street, stocks finished mixed today. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Lisa Mullins. Elected officials in Milton will meet later this month to talk about the town's loss of funding for a local infrastructure project. Governor Maura Healey said today Milton will not receive a $140,000 state grant to repair a degrading seawall. That's because the town is out of compliance with the new Zoning Act meant to increase housing near the MBTA. Voters rejected the zoning plan at the polls last week. Mike Zulis is chair of the select board. He says the state's move is misguided. If we are trying to work towards a solution, taking this kind of action doesn't help. It doesn't help our collaboration uh, with the state, which the state had pledged to do, and it doesn't help us move forward to try to get a workable solution. The town manager said in a statement that he's disappointed to lose out on the funding, but he's looking forward to working on the next steps in the new zoning process. First Lady Jill Biden announced a $100 million nationwide investment for women's health today in Cambridge. The funding is part of the White House Initiative on Women's Health Research. It's designed to close research gaps in women's health. Biden says research on women's health has always been underfunded. The city of Worcester is launching a campaign to make its roads safer. The city manager says the Vision Zero Safety Action Plan will redesign roads and change policies to address the root causes of crashes. City data show that in the past five years, 43 people were killed. Nearly 500 were injured in crashes on Worcester's roads. The goal of Vision Zero is to make that zero. Boston launched a similar campaign last year. It's a slow commute for Red Line riders right now. There is no service between Park Street and Harvard Square. The T posted on social media. That's because of earlier fire department activity in the Kendall Square station. Shuttle buses are getting riders where they need to go. No word right now on when regular service might resume. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Lyric Opera, presenting Eurydice. This March, travel to the underworld and experience love's unexpected brutality and endearing beauty. Some clouds move in for tonight. Lows about 30 degrees. Could break 40 tomorrow, mainly sunny skies. Then the work week could end with rain. Warmer temperatures, though, well into the 40s on Friday. Back to the dry, sunny weather over the weekend. 38 degrees now in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 436.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox, where viewers can stream new seasons of British detective series, including Vera, Father Brown, Death in Paradise, and more. Available at BritBox.com NPR. From Workday, with AI at the core of its platform, Workday is committed to delivering continuous innovation to help teams stay agile. Workday, the finance and HR platform for a changing world. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. On a Wednesday, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And last summer, a tax force here in California recommended that the state do something no state has ever done before. It recommended that California pay cash reparations to residents who are descended from enslaved African Americans. The reparations task force spent two years studying this issue. It also made dozens of other recommendations for lawmakers. So... Where do things stand? Well, to find out, we're joined now by NPR's Adrian Florido. Hey, Adrian. Hey, Elsa. So I know that this week marked the deadline to introduce new bills in the legislature here. So I guess the big question is, are California lawmakers proposing cash reparations or not? No, uh, there's been no movement to make uh, cash reparations a reality. Uh, what the state's legislative black caucus has been promoting are about a dozen bills, uh, most filed over the last couple of weeks, that respond to other of the task force's recommendations. Uh, so one of these bills would issue a state apology uh, for the role that California played in protecting slaveholders, even though it was never a slave state itself, uh, and for a long history of racist state policies. Okay. Uh, there are also bills to fund programs targeting racial health and wealth gaps. Uh, one bill would allow California to return land to black families who had it taken from them uh, through eminent domain uh, with racist motives. But as I said, um, all of these fall short of what had been the Reparations Task Force's primary, most headline-grabbing recommendation last summer, which was cash payments uh, as a way to atone for the harms of slavery and its racist legacy. And I remember all those headlines. Why aren't cash payments included in these bills, you think? Well, simply, there's not the political support. Uh, I spoke with Democratic State Senator Stephen Bradford. He is a leader of the Black Caucus and served on the Reparations Task Force, and uh, he supports cash payments. But he says, you know, conversations with his state house colleagues have made it pretty clear that the political will is just not there. It's the will or the, the budget. They're going to fall back on, you know, we have a $30 billion plus deficit. So I, I've been around this long enough. That's going to be enough reason why folks are going to say, oh, we can't do it now. You know, the numbers also that get uh, tossed around vary pretty widely. Uh, Bradford thinks that meaningful payments uh, would amount to at least a couple of hundred thousand dollars per eligible person. Uh, cash reparations have never been an easy sell. And so while Bradford said he hopes lawmakers will eventually move toward adopting them, for now it's not seeming likely. And uh, it's a lot of these other programs and proposals reflected in these bills that lawmakers are leaning on to be able to say that they're doing something on reparations. Huh. Well, what are advocates of reparations? saying about all of this right now? You can imagine that they're not thrilled. Uh -huh. uh, there's a big network of black activists in California who've been pressing the state on this issue for years now. Uh, I spoke with Yasmin Abdusami Oakley. She's a reparations advocate in the city of East Palo Alto. And she said, while the bills that lawmakers are pursuing are, of course, welcome. I am disappointed because there is no cash. Compensation is central to reparations. So when we are not discussing compensation, like, what are we really discussing? 
Lawmakers also are stressing that reparations can take many forms. They can look like a lot of different things. Uh, but the fact is that cash compensation has always been the main goal of advocates here. Uh, and so Abdusami Oakley says that she and others are going to keep pushing for that. Yeah, but the thing is, California is, you know, it's one of the most progressive states in the country, right? So if cash payments aren't looking yeah. that likely here, what does that say about their prospects elsewhere in the country? You know, a big part of the reason state lawmakers created the task force in California was because at the federal level, cash reparations have always been kind of dead on arrival. Most Americans just don't support them. So the thinking was, you know, let's try to do it at the state level and see if we can give this movement a boost across the country at a more local level. Um, That's why the task force's work was considered so historic. Uh, No state has ever gotten this close to a cash reparations program on a large scale. So it's just another reason advocates say they're going to keep pushing to keep the momentum going nationwide. That is NPR's Adrian Florido. Thank you, Adrian. Thanks, Elsa. Sandwiched in the strip of water between Taiwan and China is a tiny Taiwanese archipelago called the Penghu Islands. This week, China's Coast Guard began patrols in waters around a nearby Taiwanese island. As NPR's Emily Fang reports, the fishermen who live in Penghu have a front row seat to the tensions between the two places. Lin Jiatian still remembers the day his life turned upside down. He was a freshman in high school when a fishing boat his family owned became the center of a major Taiwanese scandal. One of the first cases of mainland Chinese fishermen murdering Taiwanese fishermen? That was on my family's boat, he says. The killers were caught, but three of his relatives were dead, killed in international waters, and his family's business was devastated by the fallout. He says it was 1989 when Taiwanese could not employ Chinese fishers, but Taiwan really needed more fishermen. So his family set up operations in international waters and hired Chinese fishers to work there. The killings were a brutal example early in life, he says, of how the lonely job of fishing is often caught up in the complex Taiwan-China relationship. Taiwan executed two Chinese workers, even though the crime they committed was in international waters. But Lin could not get the family's boat back. Now Lin sells fish at one of Penghu's main markets, a job that reminds him daily of the slippery nature of cross-strait tensions with China. Because, he says, this is a competitive game. Both Chinese and Taiwanese fishermen are now vying for dwindling fish stocks. Penghu is best known for its Spanish mackerel. And at this pre-dawn auction, gleaming silver specimens, each more than a yard long, are stacked like logs waiting for the highest bid. One giant fish can go for $60 to $150. Some of it is exported to the U.S. But most of it stays in Taiwan. Fisherman Chen Liangsheng would like to sell more of his fish to China. But he says China now blocks imports of certain species found in Taiwan's waters. As we talk, Indonesian fisherman Chen has hired pack up dozens of styrofoam boxes of Taiwanese goatfish for export. Chen says they're sending the boxes to Hong Kong, a Chinese-governed region, but which has not blocked the Taiwanese fish. A little workaround they've devised. Next door, fisherwoman Yang Yixian is gutting and drying mackerel for Taiwanese consumers. This is the winter catch, she explains, fished from waters close to Penghu. 
In the summers, her family's boats travel farther, almost to China's waters. And Chinese fishermen, she says, are sailing farther and farther as well, into Taiwanese waters sometimes, fishing from their fishing stocks, all competing for the same resources. The competition can turn deadly. This month, two Chinese fishermen drowned after being chased out of waters Taiwan said belonged to them. But despite the tensions, Yang says she still hires Chinese fishermen for seasonal work on her family's boats. Though there are fewer Chinese workers this year because they're demanding higher salaries. But the reliable workers who speak a common language, plus out on the water for weeks at a time, Yang says sometimes the only people you'll see are other fishermen from China, a country that is simultaneously competitor, customer, and sometimes colleague. Emily Fang, NPR News, Ma Gong in the Penghu Islands, Taiwan. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. An estimated 42% of adults in the U.S. know someone who died from a drug overdose. That number is one of many in a RAND Corporation study out today, which demonstrates the sweeping effects of the drug overdose crisis. Reporter Martha Biebinger from WBUR reports. That 42% figure translates to 125 million American adults. It means that in parts of the South and in New England, where overdose deaths are particularly high, nearly every other person you meet likely has at least one personal story to tell. The potatoes, potatoes too, then next the uh, apples. I was already scheduled for a shift at the Brookline Food Pantry yesterday, so while volunteers packed bags for delivery to shut-ins, I asked, did they know someone who died? Probably there have been four people that I went to high school with that have died of an overdose. Uh, Cousin's friend. Just a month and a half ago. I can think of one in particular that's been recent. Probably more because it's been many years. Ariel Chernin, Liam Hafter, and Lori Day were not startled to learn that so many Americans have been touched by an overdose death. This shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. It's been Everyone's seen it coming, and here it is. Chernin grew up in this town next to Boston. She's reminded of the people who are gone as she drives around the community. I think it's shocking. When you know someone like from childhood or growing up, it makes you think back to signs or would you have ever predicted or those types of things. The RAND study is based on a survey of just over 2,000 adults. The results, published in the American Journal of Public Health, estimate more than 40 million Americans report at least a short-term impact on their mental or physical health while grieving an overdose death. 12 million adults continue to mourn a devastating loss. Study co-author Allison Athey says there's very little help available for these millions of close friends and family members. We're not talking about this population of people who are really struggling as part of our broader conversation about the overdose crisis. These folks really have been left behind. Athey says there's no formal outreach to avoid triggering more overdoses as there would be after a suicide, for example. These families are not directed to clinics that offer counseling, medication if needed, or guidance. There's usually no coordinated response from a school, workplace, or community. Athey sees two reasons why. One is that most of the time and money is, understandably, focused on trying to save lives. The other is the view that families mourning a drug-related death are not worthy of attention. They tell me horror stories about people saying that 
the person who died deserved to die because they were a drug user and that it was inevitable that they died by overdose and sort of belittling the survivor who's left behind and who's grieving for the person who they loved. Leslie Gomes Preston has heard some of those cruel remarks about her daughter, Kiara, who died after an overdose in 2016. Some parents cope by hiding their grief, not Gomes Preston, who joined a grief support group for parents like her. I love to talk about it because to me, I mean, it proves she was here. And I really believe that I'll think of things at the right moment and the right time. It's, it's her. Gomes Preston says she can picture 20 or more of Kiara's high school classmates from Cape Cod who've also suffered a fatal overdose. For NPR News, I'm Martha Biebinger in Boston. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. New information has emerged about the one-time FBI informant charged with making false bribery claims about the Biden family. That story coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Bentley University's nationally ranked MBA and master's programs in technology, finance, and analytics. Become an essential force in today's evolving marketplace. And Boston's How Do You See the World experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at HowDoYouSeeTheWorld.com. Take a break and have some fun with the news by playing the WBUR crossword puzzle each day. Five letters, digital trash. Two down, south of Ecuador. Play anytime at WBUR.org slash fun. Five across biggest toy maker. Four down, rock concert pit. Play the WBUR crossword free every day at WBUR.org slash fun. The men's 2014 Boston Marathon champion says he's running the race again. Meb Kovleski said on social media today he'll be running from Hopkinton to Copley Square this April. In 2014, he became the first American man to win the race in more than three decades. He hasn't run Boston since 2018. In the forecast, overnight tonight should be cloudy with temperatures about 30 degrees, not too chilly. Tomorrow could break 40 with mainly sunny skies. It is 38 degrees now in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. The time is 4.50. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. In North Carolina, there's an 18-year-old woman who has had to live in a hospital since she was 13. Now the hospital is suing her to leave. She wants to live somewhere else too, but not where the hospital says. NPR investigative correspondent Joseph Shapiro explains. From her hospital bed, Alexis Ratcliffe asks a question. What 18-year-old gets sued? What 18-year-old gets sued? It's hard to hear Alexis. Her voice is soft, and the whoosh of the ventilator, the machine that keeps her breathing, is harsh. Alexis Radcliffe was sued by this very hospital. It wants her to leave. But I didn't ask to be here. It wasn't my choice. It wasn't my decision. I didn't want to be here. But unfortunately, I'm the one that got sued. Alexis is a quadriplegic. She can't move anything below her neck. That's why she needs that ventilator to push oxygen into her lungs. 
She came to this hospital in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, when she was 18 months old, after a car crash. Doctors here saved her life. Her mother was driving that car. She was high, got charged, and went to prison. Alexis was sent home to live with other family. But that ended when her grandfather had serious health problems and moved to an assisted living facility. So in 2019, at the age of 13, Alexis Radcliffe returned to this hospital, Atrium Health Wake Forest Baptist. Except for one six-month break, she's lived here ever since. Now the hospital says it's time for her to go. It found a bed for her in a nursing home in another state. Alexis, who became her own guardian when she turned 18 last summer, said no. The hospital then sued her for trespass. Okay, Siri. FaceTime Apple. Starting a FaceTime call to Apple. Alexis wants to get out of the hospital too, but not to live in a nursing home far away. Every day she calls her sister, Apple. I bet you money she's on the phone with her boyfriend. From her hospital bed, she uses her voice to control her iPad and iPhone. With technology like this, Alexis wants to live in her own home or apartment, close to family. Why don't you play basketball? Because I can't shoot a basketball in a hoop. Well, well, that's an issue. Alexis will need a lot of caregiving support at home, probably 24 hours a day. Aids to watch that her ventilator works, that her trach tube, which sends air to her lungs, doesn't get clogged. Someone to move her in bed and in her wheelchair so she doesn't get painful pressure sores. Still, care at home is usually cheaper than what it costs for a disabled person like Alexis to live in that hospital or a nursing home. At the hospital, Dr. Kevin High, who until recently was president here, says this isn't about money. Medicaid pays for Alexis. But a hospital isn't a place for people to live long term. And he says the ICU at Wake Forest Baptist Hospital is already crowded. We always have people waiting for beds, and especially ICU beds. And we've not had full capacity to do that when you have people who stay in the hospital for a very long period of time like this. Alexis says she still needs the bed too. One thing to note, since Alexis came back to the hospital in 2019, the level of care here has been excellent. No bed sores, no respiratory infections. Those can be common and deadly for a quadriplegic on a ventilator. And the nurses, doctors, and staff have been some of her biggest supporters and best friends. Last spring, when she graduated high school, they threw a big party. And in August, when she turned 18, staff on the pediatric side threw her an even bigger birthday party. The next day, the hospital moved her to the adult side of the hospital and up the pressure to force her to a nursing home it found in Virginia, after no nursing home in North Carolina would take her. But right now, there is no known path back for her if she leaves the state. Lisa Nesbitt is one of Alexis's lawyers at Disability Rights North Carolina. She says if Alexis moves to a nursing home in another state, she becomes a citizen of that state and gives up her North Carolina Medicaid. That would make it unlikely she could return to North Carolina. The lawyers went to court and won an order that stopped the hospital from immediately moving Alexis out of state, at least for now. She absolutely can get that care at home. Junu Cost is another lawyer at Disability Rights North Carolina. 
She notes that the state of North Carolina sent aides to help Alexis when she lived in her grandfather's home for all those years before she came back to the hospital. It's all possible, but Medicaid has to step in and help put this package together for her. There's another key player here, the state Medicaid agency. It's responsible, even required by the federal government, to help people like Alexis Radcliffe get long-term care in their own homes, not in a hospital or a nursing home. NPR asked to speak to someone at North Carolina's Medicaid agency about what they're doing to help Alexis get out of the hospital. The answer we got back, no comment. Alexis Faith Radcliffe. Last spring, Alexis graduated from her high school in a rural county north of Winston-Salem. Alexis and her lawyers say the hospital has warned, if you leave the hospital, we won't let you back in. It took a judge's order to let her attend graduation. She took classes online from her hospital bed, graduated with honors, made National Honor Society. She won a full academic scholarship to college. At nearby Salem College, a small women's school, with red brick sidewalks and buildings dating back to the 1700s. Susan Radcliffe is Alexis's aunt. This is absolutely one of the most beautiful places in Winston-Salem. She meets Alexis's faculty advisor, Diana Lipset. We talk a lot here. All of my colleagues talk about meeting students where they are. Sometimes that's metaphorical, or, sure. um, but with Alexis, it means a different space too. When Alexis couldn't leave the hospital for office hours, Lipset took office hours to Alexis in her hospital room. Lipset and the school have worked to make Alexis successful as a student, setting up those online classes for now, and thinking out how to move classes to wheelchair-accessible rooms if Alexis can one day get on campus. Alexis's aunt says until she lived in the hospital, Alexis got on a bus every day to go to middle school. She loves people and she would love to be here with her peers. She has missed out on so much of that. Alexis agrees. Yes, I am a quad, but I'm still a normal human being, just like everybody else, and I should be able to live the life to the fullest of my ability. Now, Alexis Radcliffe wants to get out of the hospital to avoid the nursing home in another state and to move into a place she can call home. Joseph Shapiro, NPR News. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from the station and from UCSF Health. The cancer team at UC San Francisco is working to uncover new and better ways to target and destroy cancer cells. Learn more at ucsfhealth.org slash targeting cancer. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. Some clouds move in overnight tonight. Lows about 30. Tomorrow could break 40 degrees, mainly sunny skies. The work week could end with some rain. Warmer temperatures on Friday, though, well into the 40s. And then back to the dry, sunny weather over the weekend should be mainly in the 30s. Again, 37 degrees now in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 459. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. An ex-informant for the FBI accused of making false bribery claims about the Biden family may have had contacts with Russian intelligence. Our story is coming up on this Wednesday, February 21st. You're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. Lisa Mullins also ahead. The U.S. Department of Education says it's erasing $1.2 billion in federal student loans. At the same time, it struggled to implement a new application for federal student aid. Harvard's Hasty Pudding Club is celebrating its 175th production. One of the stars of the 1985 musical was none other than Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me's Peter Sagal. We had an ingenue crusader who, of course, falls in love. And then there's villains, and I believe in the end, virtue triumph. Also, Beyonce and the history of black women in country music, coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden on a three-day campaign swing through California announced today his administration is canceling another $1.2 billion in student loan debt. The cancellations under the SAVE program were originally not slated to begin until July. Biden said despite an earlier attempt to erase federal student loan debt being derailed by the Supreme Court, relief efforts continue. Early in my term, I announced a major plan to provide millions of working families with debt relief for their college student debt. Tens of millions of people in debt were literally about to be canceled, their debts. But my MAGA Republican friends in the Congress, elected officials and special interests stepped in and sued us and the Supreme Court blocked it. This latest cancellation program affects roughly 153,000 borrowers under the program who paid their loans for at least 10 years and borrowed $12,000 or less. Former President Donald Trump is on the hook for millions of dollars in legal penalties as a result of two separate civil cases. Bears Rachel Treisman reports on where some of the money could come from. The recent verdicts in Trump's defamation and fraud trials have him facing fines and damage awards totaling more than $450 million. And that's not including interest. Put together, it's more money than the former president is reported to have in cash assets. Even though Trump plans to appeal both cases, he still needs to put the money down soon. Experts say he could either pay the penalties himself or find other entities to post bond on his behalf. Trump seems to be exploring some new revenue streams as well. The day after the fraud verdict, he unveiled a line of shiny high-top sneakers priced at nearly $400 a pair. Meanwhile, thousands of Trump supporters are donating to an online fundraiser on his behalf. Rachel Treisman, NPR News. An advocacy group against sexual assault has compiled a report about sexual violence in the Hamas attack on Israel on October 7th. 
A warning, the report you're about to hear contains graphic details. UN experts also calling for an investigation to accounts of Israeli abuses against Palestinian women. More from NPR's Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv. Israel's Association of Rape Crisis Centers has submitted a report to the United Nations on sexual violence committed by Hamas at a music festival in kibbutz communities and in Israeli military bases. It says it gathered confidential information from officials and testimonies from first responders and found a, quote, systematic targeted pattern of abuse, assaulting women in front of family and friends before killing them, genital mutilation, and inserting weapons inside victims' genitals. And UN Human Rights Council experts are calling for an independent investigation into what they term credible allegations of Israeli soldiers assaulting Palestinian women and girls in Gaza. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. On Wall Street, the Dow was up 48 points. The Nasdaq fell 49 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The governor's council could vote on Governor Moore Healy's pick for the state's highest court by next week. The nominee, appeals court judge Gabrielle Wolohogin, fielded questions for hours at a statehouse hearing today. But as WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports, members of the governor's council shied away from asking her whether her past romantic relationship with the governor presented a conflict of interest. Counselors probed Wolohogin on issues like the emerging threats of artificial intelligence and the state's new police oversight commission. Only Counselor Tara Jacobs asked the judge about the controversy over her nomination and whether it gave the appearance of favoritism. Wolohogin said she has applied for a seat on the high court before and is following the same process as other applicants. I understand your concern about the optics, but sitting from my chair, I have done everything like every other candidate. And I don't know what else I can do. The Massachusetts Republican Party has opposed Willa Holgen's nomination in written statements, but did not show up to testify. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Congressman Stephen Lynch is putting pressure on Steward Healthcare to share information about its finances. The for-profit healthcare system owns nine hospitals in Massachusetts. It recently revealed serious financial troubles. Lynch says vendors have been taking back medical equipment because they're not getting paid. The hospital has also been cutting back on the number of nurses on shifts. Steward has two missions as a for-profit. One is to generate revenue for their shareholders or private equity firm, and then also try to provide high-quality health care. In this case, I believe that those missions were in conflict, and I think the profit motive won out. So far, Stewart executives have not complied with requests to share financial information with state officials. Governor Healy has given the company until Friday to comply. Both U.S. senators from Massachusetts are calling for more money to support shelters for newly arrived immigrants. Senators Warren and Markey sent a letter to the Appropriations Committee looking for $5 billion for the federal program supporting the organizations that provide shelter and services to new arrivals. In their letter to the committee, leaders Markey and, uh, Markey and Warren said funding for the program is critical. And red line trains on the T are running once again. Services halted between Park Street and Harvard Square for a couple of hours because of what the T said was a fire department activity in the Kendall Square station. The T posted on social media that riders should expect delays as service does get back to normal. In the forecast, after a really nice day today, should have some clouds moving in tonight, about 30 degrees for a low. Tomorrow, inching to the low 40s with sunny skies yet again. 37 degrees now in Boston at 507. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Kaufman Foundation, 
providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kaufman.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. Queen Bee has done it again, this time becoming the first black woman ever to top Billboard's Hot Country Songs chart. We will have more on the path that black women paved for Beyonce's latest success in a few minutes. First, though, President Biden's younger brother was on Capitol Hill today. James Biden's closed-door deposition is part of the Republican-led impeachment inquiry against the president. And meanwhile, new information has emerged about the former FBI informant who has been charged with making false bribery claims about the Bidens. Prosecutors say Alexander Smirnov has extensive contacts with Russian intelligence. NPR Justice correspondent Ryan Lucas is covering all of this. He's in the studio now. Hey, Ryan. Hey there. Okay, start with that last twist. The former FBI informant who has been charged Alexander Smirnov. The government says he has Russian intelligence contacts. What do we know? Well, this all comes from a court filing from the government. And in that document, prosecutors say that Smirnov has significant contacts with multiple foreign intelligence agencies, but they really do zero in on what they say are his ties with Russia's spy services. We don't get any names, of course, about who some of his contacts are, but we do get some details. Uh, One of his contacts, for example, is described to his FBI handler uh, as the son of a former high-ranking Russian official. This contact is said to control a group that conducts assassinations overseas. Uh, Another contact is described in court papers as the head of a unit of a Russian intelligence service. But to be clear, prosecutors also say that Smirnov disclosed all of these contacts to his FBI handler. So this is not something that he was hiding from the FBI. Okay, so help me here. He wasn't hiding it. And am I not right in thinking this is exactly why he would be useful as an informant to the FBI? Wouldn't they want somebody with Russian contacts? That's exactly right. I actually talked to Stephen Laycock about this. He was a senior counterintelligence official at the FBI, and he finished his career leading the, the Bureau's intelligence branch. And he said, look, there's nothing unusual about Smirnov's contacts on their own. As you said, it's exactly why he would be useful to the FBI. But at the same time, Laycock says the FBI is always evaluating the information that an an informant is giving them. The idea is to constantly assess whether the information that's coming in is credible, whether it's consistent. And he said, sometimes you have to look at whether you're being lied to, whether you're being fed misinformation or disinformation. So in other words, whether there's some sort of double game afoot. And is there a double game of foot? I mean, what do we know? Well, there's there's certainly a nod to that possibility in the court papers. Yes, prosecutors say that Smirnov's ties with the Russians are not, quote unquote, benign. Uh, and they say that Smirnov told authorities after he was arrested last week in Las Vegas that officials associated with Russian intelligence were involved in passing along a story about Hunter Biden, the president's son. Prosecutors don't specify what that story might be, but this does all raise questions of whether there is some sort of info here being fed by Russian intelligence. Okay, and to focus on why we're here talking about this, Smirnov's claims have been central to the whole case that House Republicans are trying to build in this impeachment inquiry. Do we know if the case has been affected? Well, it certainly dealt a blow to the Republicans' case. It was not a particularly strong case to begin with. They haven't produced any concrete evidence thus far tying the president to wrongdoing, but The Smirnoff case, outwardly at least, has not prompted Republicans leading the impeachment inquiry to back down in any way. The Republican chairman of the House Oversight Committee, James Comer, uh, has almost brushed aside the Smirnoff indictment, even though Comer himself once called Smirnoff's bribery claims uh, a, a key part of the impeachment probe. Instead, 
What Comer has done is criticize the FBI and its handling of the investigation. Uh, and he said that the bribery allegation isn't the only thing that the impeachment inquiry uh, is hanging its hat on, so to speak. Which brings us to President Biden's brother, James Biden. We said he was on Capitol Hill today, a closed door deposition. Did we get any readout? Well, we know from a copy of his opening statement to lawmakers that James Biden told them that his brother, President Biden, has never had any involvement or financial interest in James's business dealings. He also said that he never asked his brother to take any official action on his behalf or anyone else's behalf. That said, we do not have a full picture at this point of everything that was said behind closed doors. What we do know is that the president's son, Hunter, is expected to appear next week to answer questions, again behind closed doors. Uh, he, of course, has been a central figure here for Republicans who have really put uh, his business dealings under scrutiny. So this impeachment inquiry is still active for now. And Piers Ryan Lucas, thank you. Thank you. Well, Beyonce has made history again. This ain't Texas. The artist dropped Texas Hold'em in a surprise announcement during the Super Bowl, and that song has already rocketed to the top of Billboard's Hot Country Songs chart. She is now the first black woman to ever hold that spot. But, you know, black women have been influential throughout the history of this genre. To put this moment into context, we called Francesca Royster. She's a professor at DePaul University and the author of the book Black Country Music, listening for revolutions. Welcome. Thank you, Elsa. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, I'm so excited to talk to you. Okay. I mean, we need to talk about the moments in country music history that got us to this moment for Beyonce, right? Because you can't understand what's going on now without starting with Linda Martell. She was the first black woman to find commercial success in country with her 1970s hit, Bad Case of the Blues. Let's take a listen. Living and working in the city Swang in my chair. Tell us about Linda Martell's impact on country music. I love this song. She's great. She's such a wonderful storyteller, and her humor is just so, so wry in that song. Um, but she's had such a great impact because um, her album, Color Me Country, was, you know, the first album by a Black woman to chart uh, singles. She also, you know, was the first Black woman to be on the Grand Old Opry stage to perform there. And, you know, she also performed on Hee Haw and some other, like, very mainstream super country music spaces right. where Black women aren't usually allowed to go. But she also musically influenced a whole generation of country music singers after her, from Rissy Palmer to Mickey Guyton and Brittany Spencer and others. Yeah, can we talk about Rissy Palmer? Because I know you are very excited to talk about her. Another important country artist. She exploded onto the scene in 2007 with her song Country Girl. Oh, And she's had continued success since then, right? She even has a podcast spotlighting minority voices in country. Yes, Rissy Palmer is amazing. You know, in her own right as a performer, she's made beautiful music from Still Here that uh, she did with Nico Marks to her uh, song Country Girl. But she also has this amazing podcast, Color Me Country. She's getting artists to tell their own stories, to connect the artists with producers and other music makers in the industry. Um, she also has created the Color Me Country Fund, 
which helps, you know, fund emerging artists and gives them a way to record their music. So I just think she's really like a one-woman force in terms of really changing and creating routes of access for um, country music artists of color. Well, I do want to get to Beyonce, of course. And with respect to Beyonce herself, I mean, this moment at of being at the top of Billboard's Hot Country Songs, it didn't just come out of the blue for her because she did lay down some of the groundwork, like her 2016 album Lemonade had this one country song on it called Daddy Lessons, which I know was also released as a single with the Chicks, or formerly Dixie Chicks. Let's take a listen. moment for this song was when Beyonce and the Chicks performed it together at the Country Music Awards, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was an amazing performance. It was right on the, you know, the cusp of the presidential election. It was an important moment in terms of kind of racial connections and also racial tensions. But the song is so amazing because it is a song that kind of demonstrates the organicness of country music to black music. And I think it fits in so well with Lemonade, where Beyonce is like using all kinds of musical sounds and includes just like very, very casually daddy lessons in it. So it's an important kind of claim to country that, you know, is totally makes sense for someone from Houston, you know, who rode horses as a kid. Exactly. Well, let me ask you, I mean, what do you think Beyonce's success right now with Texas Hold'em and the other songs she just released, 16 Carriages, which is also charting, what do you think that says about her future in country music specifically? Well, it definitely shows that she has an audience. Mm-hmm. And, you know, <laughs> listening to the commentary about the song online, um, you know, on social media, I keep hearing again and again Beyonce fans who say, I never liked country music, but now I really, I can hear myself in this music. I can hear my story. But what about country music fans who weren't originally Beyonce fans? Are they hearing something in these two songs that they didn't otherwise hear in Beyonce music and now they're converted? What do you think? I think that there are those who are um, country fans who are excited for this and excited for the quality of the music as well and the musicianship. I mean, um, Texas Hold'em has Rhiannon Giddens playing banjo and viola. Another black artist, yep. Another black artist who's an amazing pathbreaker in her own right. Um, And so there's a kind of authenticity and attention to the instruments that, you know, a lot of country fans really um, want to pay attention to, like the banjo, uh, to strings, and then, you know, amazing storytelling. So there are lots of ways that country fans who might like their country more traditional might find themselves drawn into Texas Hold'em and 16 Carriages. Francesca Royster, author of the book Black Country Music, Listening for Revolutions. Thank you so much, Francesca. Thank you, Elsa. Back road, all the tears I find. 
so good. You are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR coming up at 544, long before he became host of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Peter Sagal played the devil on stage in Harvard Square. A look at the past and present of the Hasty Pudding Theatricals coming up on WBUR. WBUR supporters include Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. And Stanhope Framers, Back Bay in Somerville, celebrating 51 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. StanhopeFramers.com. The Dow and S&P both had modest gains, up a little over a tenth of a percent by the final bell today. NASDAQ closed lower for a third day. It fell three-tenths of a percent. Massachusetts Attorney General Andrea Campbell is fining a high-end staffing agency nearly $2.5 million for wage violations. Plymouth-based concierge services provides employees for jobs such as front desk clerks and helping residents of luxury properties. The AG says between 2018 and 2021, concierge did not pay minimum wage and overtime, didn't pay workers on time, and barred them from using sick time. WBR has reached out to the company for comment. The forecast is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bridgewater State University. Ranked 18th in Massachusetts on the Wall Street Journal's 2024 Best Colleges in America list. Bridgew.edu. And The Huntington, presenting Stand Up If You're Here Tonight, a man-seeking audience. A one-man, one-audience show, 264 Huntington Ave., now through March 3rd. Turning cloudy tonight, down around 30. Sun's back for tomorrow. Could break 40 degrees. It's 521. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive, Nervive Nerve Relief is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. The Biden administration announced today yet another big move to erase more than a billion dollars in federal student loan debt. Here's President Biden speaking earlier today. I'm proud to announce our SAVE plan. We are immediately canceling the debt loans for over 150,000 borrowers nearly six months ahead of schedule. The news offers Biden's education department a chance to change the subject after a recent string of embarrassing missteps. NPR's Corey Turner joins us now to talk us through it all. Hey, Corey. Hey, Elsa. So I want to start with this debt forgiveness. Exactly who is going to get this help and, and how does it work? Well, as we just heard President Biden mention, it's part of his new repayment plan, which is called SAVE. Uh, The plan promises loan forgiveness for folks who borrowed less than $12,000 and who've been in repayment for at least a decade. Now, originally, the Ed Department wasn't going to roll this out until July, but they decided to fast track it. Uh, As for who's going to help Elsa, we're talking about, for now anyway, Uh, 150,000 borrowers, thereabouts, a lot of them are community college students, lower income borrowers, 
Uh, it's also worth noting that $12,000 threshold, it's not a hard cutoff. So for every thousand you borrow on top of that, just add one year to the forgiveness time. Okay. This sounds really great, but do we know how much this loan relief is going to cost? <laughs> well, there are a couple different answers to that question. Today's announcement is going to raise about $1.2 billion in federal student loan debt. More broadly, though, the SAVE plan is likely to have a pretty hefty price tag. Think about $475 billion over 10 years. That's one estimate. It comes from the Penn Wharton budget model. And it's expensive because it is very generous for lower income borrowers, which was the point, you know, of the millions of people who are right now enrolled in SAVE. More than half qualify for a $0 monthly payment. Now, as you can imagine, Republicans today were not very happy. They're not happy about the cost. Uh, the top Republican on the Senate Education Committee, Senator Bill Cassidy, called today's loan relief, quote, unfair, manipulative, and a cynical attempt to buy votes. It is worth noting the borrowers who are getting this relief today are going to find out about it through an email from President Biden. Uh, Senator Cassidy also said the department has focused so much on loan relief, it has failed to keep up with some of its other big responsibilities. Oh, ouch. I mean, <laughs> you were on this show not that long ago, Corey, talking about some pretty big missteps with the FAFSA, right? Is that what Cassidy's talking about, you think? Yeah, exactly. The free application for federal student aid. This year, the department released the FAFSA three months late. It was really buggy, and it included a handful of pretty serious mistakes that would have hurt disadvantaged students. Though the department is now fixing those mistakes, families are going to have to a lot less time than usual to decide if they can actually afford the cost of college, Elsa. Mm -hmm. And that's why, you know, I'm hearing from some families, students, and of course, Republican lawmakers who are looking at today's debt relief news and asking, how can the department do something this big ahead of schedule and yet make such a mess of the FAFSA? <laughs> that is NPR's Cory Turner. Thank you, Cory. You're welcome. Inside a London courtroom this week, lawyers have been arguing the case of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, who is fighting his extradition to the United States. Outside that London courtroom, protesters have gathered, with them Assange's wife, Stella Assange, who says her husband's prosecution would threaten freedom of the press everywhere. It's an attack on all journalists. It's an attack on the truth. And it's an attack on the public's right to know. Well, the U.S. Justice Department sees things differently. It has charged him with 17 counts of espionage for his role in publishing hundreds of thousands of classified documents in 2010. We're going to talk this through with Jamil Jaffer, executive director of the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University. Hi there. Hello. Hi. So I, I know you testified. This was um, back in 2020 at the request of Assange's attorneys during an earlier extradition proceeding. But I read through and it, you came down squarely on the side that Assange's indictment does indeed pose a grave threat to press freedom. So make the case. You know, what gets people hung up here is this question of whether Assange is properly considered to be a journalist or WikiLeaks is properly considered to be a media organization. And I think both of those questions are essentially red herrings. The important point is that the indictment that the Justice Department has filed charges Assange with having violated the Espionage Act for engaging in the kinds of activities that national security journalists engage in all the time. And a successful prosecution of him would end up criminalizing 
a lot of investigative journalism that is really crucial to our democracy. So let me put to you uh, an argument that lawyers for the U.S. have been making. They argue that Assange indiscriminately published to the world the names of individuals who acted as sources of information to the U.S., um, that the material he published was obtained by encouraging people to steal documents, that it contained unredacted names of U.S. sources, potentially putting them in danger. What do you make of those arguments? One of the arguments is that uh, Assange solicited classified information. You know, journalists do that all the time. We don't, Use if I may, we don't encourage people to Go steal ahead. documents. We're not uh, publishing unredacted names of sources without any consideration as to whether that would put them in danger. Well, so I, I want to say I want to get to the second point in, in a second, but I just want to address the the stealing classified documents point. You know, when national security journalists are reporting on issues relating to, say, war, they do it by asking government officials to share government secrets, you know, and that's a request for classified information. Now, you, you asked me a second question, which is important, I think. I want to make clear that I am not defending Assange's editorial choices. I think some of them were terrible. Uh, but you have to separate the sort of the ethical questions from the legal questions. Mm-hmm. You know, at the end of the day, if the entitlement to First Amendment protection turns on whether the government believes that a publisher exercised its editorial discretion appropriately, then the First Amendment's protection is going to be unavailable most of the time. Understanding that this next question is not central to the legal considerations, it feels central to me as a journalist who's worked extensively on the national security beat. I'm well familiar with the painstaking process that reporters go through in weighing whether and how to publish classified information. Is there evidence that Assange did any of that? Uh, Fact-checking, providing context, weighing the risk to national security, weighing the risk to individuals' lives who might be named in secret documents? I, I don't think he did anything like what, you know, say, the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal did. I think there's a real difference. That said, some of what WikiLeaks published was hugely important to informing the public. Uh, And it is also true that what you have to think about is how would the precedent created by the prosecution of Assange be used against all of the journalists who you and I probably think of as exercising their power more responsibly. Jamil Jaffer of the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure to talk with you. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny's wife, Yulia, has been thrust into the spotlight since Navalny's death last week. Now she's taking on a new role as politician. That story coming up in about 10 minutes on WBUR. Bruins begin a four-game road trip out west tonight as they visit the Edmonton Oilers. Another nice clear day today. Some clouds roll in tonight, a little bit milder than it has been overnight, about 30 for a low. Tomorrow, sunshine, some clouds around could break into the low 40s. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Bentley University's executive education programs. Elevate your career with short programs in AI, leadership, and sustainability. Upskill for today's marketplace. 
West Virginia's Democratic Senator Joe Manchin says he thought about making a third-party bid for president, but he won't because he doesn't want to be a spoiler. There's no way I could support or vote for Donald Trump. I think it would be very detrimental to our country. But he's not enamored of President Biden either. So who does he want to be president? That's tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. More than four months after the surprise terror attacks on Israel by Hamas, U.S. Special Envoy Brett McGurk is on his way back to the region, hoping to secure the release of the remaining U.S. hostages. This after meeting with mediators in Cairo and Egypt, State Department spokesman Matthew Miller told reporters today the U.S. is still seeking a temporary ceasefire to get them out and provide much-needed food and medical aid to Palestinians. We are going to continue to stay engaged in this matter um, uh, with everything that we can bring to bear on behalf of the United States to work with Israel, to work with Egypt, to work with Qatar, uh, because we want to see the hostages released. We want to see a pause in the fighting, so that's what we'll continue to pursue. Miller reiterated the U.S. position that a two-state solution is the only viable path forward to lasting peace in the Middle East. The Texas Attorney General is attempting to shut down a faith-based organization in El Paso that provides temporary shelter for unauthorized migrants. From member station KTEP, Angela Cocherga reports. According to court records, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton alleges Annunciation House is involved in smuggling because it provides transportation and temporary shelter for migrants. The Catholic organization says the effort to shut down the nonprofit is unfounded. Annunciation House obtained a temporary restraining order after the Attorney General's office ordered the temporary shelter to turn over records. A.G. Paxton countersued. Annunciation House has been helping migrants and refugees since the mid-1980s. In recent years, U.S. Customs and Border Protection has coordinated with the nonprofit when it releases migrants to await immigration court proceedings. I'm Angela Cochergan, El Paso. Stocks finished mixed on Wall Street as weakness in the tech sector weighed on the markets today. The Dow gained 48 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. High rates of overdose deaths in Massachusetts could be spurring what researchers call a vicious circle of grief and loss. WBUR's Martha Biebinger has more on a Rand Corporation study out today. The study estimates that nearly every other adult in Massachusetts knows someone who died of an overdose. Lead author Allison Athey says some research shows that deaths related to despair can be contagious. This type of bereavement is creating vicious circles within communities where there's a death that spurs suffering, that spurs more deaths, that spurs more suffering, and there's an exponential increase. Athey says she knows there are many demands on the use of opioid settlement funds coming into Massachusetts and other states, but she suggests using some to help slow these cycles of grief in hard-hit communities. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger. 20 Boston-area landlords and real estate brokers are facing a housing discrimination lawsuit. The complaint was filed today by the nonprofit Housing Rights Initiative. It claims the defendants failed to accept housing vouchers from low-income renters. That's illegal under anti-discrimination law. Aaron Carr is executive director of the Housing Rights Initiative. He says the defendants represent thousands of housing units around the city. We want this lawsuit to send a message to every real estate company in Boston, in Massachusetts, that if you are discriminating against families with housing vouchers, the question of whether you will be caught is not 
a matter of if, but when. The group is asking the court to force brokers to set aside units for low-income renters and increase oversight. Boston's Arlington Street Church is getting a nearly $750,000 grant from the National Park Service. It's part of the Park Service's effort to preserve sites related to the fight for equal rights. It says it chose the Arlington Street Church because of its involvement in the LGBTQ plus community dating back to the 1970s. The forecast is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston's How Do You See the World experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at howdoyouseetheworld.com. Should be partly cloudy tonight, settling around 30 degrees. Tomorrow's sunshine and clouds both moving into the low 40s. Showers move in for Friday, turning a little bit milder. Temperatures in the mid-40s. 37 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. It's 535. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Indiana University, committed to moving the world forward and working to tackle some of society's biggest challenges. Nine campuses, one purpose, creating tomorrow today. More at iu.edu. And from SmartMouth, committed to the prevention of bad breath for 24 hours with zinc ion technology. SmartMouth products can be found nationwide at drugstores, grocery stores, and super centers, or at smartmouth.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. We're going to go to the Florida Keys now, where scientists have been planting cultivated corals in an effort to revitalize reefs that are threatened by heat and disease. Last summer, though, the waters at these keys reached hot tub temperatures, which dealt a severe blow to those restoration efforts. An underwater survey this month revealed that just one fifth of the staghorn corals that scientists planted have survived, and only 5% of the elkhorn corals remain. Katie Lesneski has been diving on these surveys. She's with the Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary and joins us now. Welcome back to the show. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for having me on to tell you the next part of the story of these corals in the Keys. Yeah. Well, before we get to the next part, I just want to hear you describe, like, what have you been seeing recently on these dives that you've been doing? So during our research cruise, we started at our northernmost site, which is Carey's Fort Reef off of Key Largo. And there we were quite pleased to see a number of living colonies of elkhorn and staghorn coral, which when they're healthy are this really nice, rich, beautiful tan, orange and brown color. And they really stand out against the blue water Mm. and the rest of the reef that has purple and green and yellow sea fans. As we moved further south on our way to Key West, unfortunately, we found more and more dead corals that have died either within the last several months or maybe within the last six months. And that looks quite different. Um, The colors are very drab. The coral skeletons are covered in brown and green algae. And it looks basically just like a field of rocks and all of that color has gone. Wow, like so you can't even tell if it's coral. Exactly. It looks like a very monotonous landscape and just does not have that beautiful variety of colors that you see on a healthy reef. Well, then let me ask you this. What do these survival rates that we've been talking about mean for restoration efforts long term? I mean, is it still worth cultivating and planting new corals into these reefs knowing that they're undergoing so much stress when they're trying to survive there? 
Yeah, so that's a great question, and it is one that a lot of people have posed. And while these survival rates are not where we would like them to be, when these corals were still alive on the reefs, they were providing ecological benefits and subsequently economic benefits. And we have quite a lot to learn from these survivors. Why did they survive? Where exactly in different reef habitats did they survive? And can we use that information to make even better decisions about reef restoration going forward? I feel like this conversation is pretty depressing, though. I mean, how do you keep these corals alive given the environment? Is there any sliver of hope that you can offer? <laughs> yes. So finding a sliver of hope is always so important for myself and my colleagues. Um, the piece of hope that I can offer is that, of course, we did find individuals of these species living on our reef restoration sites. And as I mentioned, we have a lot to learn from them. But during these surveys, anecdotally, we looked at other species on these reefs and found that corals that we lumped together in the category of boulder corals, massive corals, and brain corals, they looked very vibrant in color um, mm. as if nothing had phased them. And so we have hope that those individuals in the reef community will continue to do well in the coming months and years. Diversity is always better. I absolutely agree. <laughs> that is Katie Lesneski, a research coordinator for coral restoration at the Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary. Thank you so much, Katie. Thank you so much, Elsa. The British government has imposed sanctions on six Russians who ran the penal colony where opposition leader Alexei Navalny died last week. The U.S. is preparing its own sanctions, and Navalny's widow says she is taking charge of his movement. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports on the tough road ahead as she picks up his mantle. A leading Russian journalist now in exile, Yevgenia Albots, has known the Navalny's for decades and says Alexei was always trying to prove to Yulia that he was worth her love. Albots believes that made him a better politician. Alexei Navalny, there were two people inside this great Russian politician. It was Alexei and Yulia Navalny. Putin убил. In a video released this week, Yulia Navalnaya says Vladimir Putin has, quote, killed half of me, killed half my heart and my soul. But the other half lives and tells me I have no right to give up. I will continue Alexei Navalny's cause, she says. The 47-year-old has mostly been behind the scenes, raising their two children and playing a supportive role in his political movement. She burst into the limelight in 2020 when Alexei Navalny was poisoned with the nerve agent Novichok. Yulia went to the hospital with TV cameras to pressure Russia to let him go. She arranged for him to travel to Germany, where he recovered and uncovered the plot against him, a story told in an Oscar-winning documentary. Albots, now a media fellow at Harvard University, says Yulia was upset when Alexei decided to go back to Russia, but she knew she couldn't talk him out of it. They were extremely close and extremely united. But everything what Navalny did as a politician was done usually after the liberation and discussion with Yulia Navalny. I would say that she was the pragmatic side of this power couple. 
Alexei could get very emotional while Yulia was more calculating, according to Albots. She says Navalny's widow can't go back to Russia as long as Putin is alive, but Yulia is likely now to get into politics, says economics professor Sergei Guryev, who has known her for a decade and describes her as strong and independent. Putin is a killer, and therefore what Yulia is doing is extremely brave. But she's also so impressive that Putin will indeed be sorry that he has forced her to go into politics. In neighboring Belarus, the wife of a jailed opposition figure ran for president but had to flee and now lives in exile. That woman, Svetlana Tikhonovskaya, does have influence abroad but not inside Belarus. Some experts fear the same fate for Yulia Navalnaya, but Natalia Arnaud, who runs the Free Russia Foundation, thinks Navalnaya can be influential, galvanizing Western support for Russian democracy activists and reaching out to Russians through social media. And through the exiled Russian press. When I was looking at her, my impression was she has turned into an iron lady. She says Alexei Navalny often spoke about a beautiful future for Russia, as opposed to Putin, who is obsessed with the past and his war in Ukraine. Arnaud thinks Yulia Navalnaya can pick up on these themes. And this is what usually women do <laughs> very often. <laughs> yes, uh, men can create ideas, but very often women just work and do. And maybe uh, in the times of the war, it's good to have a female figure on the top. And she says that's what exiled democracy activists need to see that the movement is still alive. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. In 1844, James Polk was elected president of the United States. The first electrical self-winding clock was invented, and the Hasty Pudding Theatricals was founded. It's produced musicals nearly every year since then. This year's is the 175th. The Hasty Pudding is part of Harvard College. Every production has been written and acted by Harvard students. This year's is called Heist Heist Baby. It is a zany madcap musical, just as it was in 1985. That year's show was Witch and Famous. One of the stars was none other than public radio's leading man, Peter Sagal of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. We spoke with Peter and with the current president of Hasty Pudding, Josh Hillers, Peter well remembers those days on stage in Harvard Square. The plot of the show, as I remember, was a group of crusaders head off to fight the crusade in the Holy Land, and they get lost, and they end up in a very backwards kingdom, and things look bleak, but it turns out that this backwards corner Arabian kingdom has all this goopy, oily stuff. And, you know, we were sending up fossil fuels. That was our uh, satirical target. Oh, wow. That's good. So you had kind of a social conscience even way back then. Always, always. Always. You know, I'm always trying to educate through my art, Lisa. Exactly. (laughs) Which you do every week on Wait, Wait. Uh, And there was a love story in there in the second half. Oh, absolutely. There was a love story. We We had an ingenue crusader who, of course, falls in love. And then there's villains. And I believe in the end, virtue triumphed. That's right. The play that's chosen is written by students and is a contest, and then one particular one is chosen. 
Josh, since you have a hand in deciding which play is going to win, what's the magic formula? What does it have to include? Well, there's kind of a pretty simple formula, um, which is you need to have a 10-member cast in your show, able to be played by anyone, as we now have gender-inclusive casting as of uh, five years ago. And your show title has to be a pun name. And other than that, just make it a comedy musical and throw in a, what we like to call a dirty love duet. Uh, which is just a, a purely uh, you know, innuendo-based song between two characters that expresses their love. That's about it. The, the big change, though, is something that Josh just mentioned, that until five years ago, the cast was all male and had been for, let me do some math here again, English major, not my strength, 170 years then. Mm-hmm. It was an all-male drag show. All the female characters were played by men. That was part of the appeal of it. So when you allowed women in on stage, did that kind of put the kibosh and everything? Did we ruin it for you? Uh, no, I, I think it's been a, a really great change for our organization because now it's kind of when we do our casting, it's like we have the opportunity to put women in the role of men and, and highlight that in our show and ensure that it adds to you know this whole spectacle of our comedy musical. So I think it's been a really fantastic change for our organization. And I should say, by the way, if you've never seen a Hasty Pudding show, it is amazingly professional. There are professional designers and directors Mm -hmm. working on the show. There are amazing resources devoted to the sets and props and staging. So it's this extraordinary thing to find out what it is to work in the professional theater when you're an undergraduate. And that made me want to end up pursuing that as a career, which I did for a long time. So it was a, to be serious for a second, was a huge event in my uh, in my life. Peter, this propelled you to where you are right now. So Josh is a senior at Harvard, about to graduate. Josh, I don't know if you have any intention, since you're studying science right now and philosophy, if you have any intention of going into theater. But uh, Peter, any advice for Josh? Uh, Yeah, basically, for most people, and I hate to say this, this is as good as it gets. It took me a long time even though I was pursuing theater professionally, it took me a long time, weirdly, to get back to just the level of, I don't know how best to put it, happiness that I had working on that pudding show. And everything was a joy. And this, it turns out, is not often the case in the American theater. So uh, if you do go into it, Josh, for whatever reason, keep your pudding experience as the goal, but don't expect it as the standard. Josh, I think he's telling you not to graduate. No, yeah, well, that's, yes, obviously, if you can find a way, if you can just fail just enough <laughs> classes so that you have to repeat mm, and you, know, you can afford the tuition, I would recommend that. Well, Josh, I actually am planning on pursuing theater, so well, uh, you are. I'll, I'll keep that in mind. Yes, yes, there's a recent kind of change of heart for me, but this is, this is what I want to do. All I can say, I mean, I know this is getting a little sentimental, but if, if people who have resources, if universities have access to resources, invest them in the arts, because it shouldn't just be... Harvard students who get into this ancient organization that have the opportunity to put on fabulous shows with the kind of backing and resources that the Hasty Pudding has always had. I just wish the same thing for more and more people. Well, thank you very much, Hasty Pudding Theatricals alum, Peter Sagel and current president of Hasty Pudding Theatricals, Joshua Hillers. Thank you both so much. My pleasure. Thank, thank you. you both. Take care. Bye-bye. This year's Hasty Pudding production is Heist Heist Baby. It's still playing at Farkas Hall in Harvard Square before it travels to New York and then Bermuda.
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsie Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Texas Christian University's women's basketball team was so good early this season, it cracked the top 25 in the AP's national rankings. But after multiple players were sidelined with injuries, the Division I Big 12 squad started a losing streak. So the team held rare walk-on tryouts to refill its roster and try to restore the team's winning ways. Bill Zebel with member station KERA in Dallas reports. Pre-game excitement reverberates through TCU's Schulmeyer Arena, where the once-winning Horned Frogs host the seventh-ranked Texas Longhorns. The Frogs' record-setting 14 straight opening wins ended with the new year after serious injuries took out four top players. Two of those losses were forfeits because the team had only six players and couldn't field a team. A desperate TCU immediately held walk-on tryouts a first for this school. Pre-med sophomore Makia Moore, who's 20, is one of the four who made the Division I team. I was like, this is probably never going to happen again. I can at least, the least I can do is get like a little taste of college basketball, and especially at the D1 level, which has been really amazing so far. Amazing because Moore played ball all through high school but thought she'd left team play behind. She hadn't practiced in more than a year. She and the other walk-ons know their skills aren't equal to their teammates, their passion, though, is. Just ask 20-year-old Madison Connor, one of TCU's stars who got injured. These girls have been great. They come in here every day and work. I mean, they just help me with the workout. So just seeing how much they love the game and genuinely just want to be a part of a team. TCU coach Mark Campbell wasn't sure what he'd see at the tryouts. After all, school was well underway, class schedules were set, and any hopefuls were out of practice, if not out of shape. But he says 40 to 50 young women tried out. They were diving on the floor. They were just beat red. They were competing. It was really refreshing to see the joy and passion for the opportunity they were trying to earn. It was like American Idol. At least the Division I college basketball version. In the very first game with walk-ons, TCU actually won, but they've mostly lost since. The role of walk-ons, says Coach Campbell, is to spell the regulars during games and keep them sharp in practice. You can't look at it as, are they in the game playing a huge role in helping us win? No. Are they in practice flat out competing and giving us everything they got to prepare us for the game? Yes. In that recent match against the Texas Longhorns, it was a three-point game at the half. Horn Frog fans were hopeful. But in the end, Texas wore down and blew out TCU by more than 20 points. Here's Coach Campbell after the loss. The last two games, we've struggled to hit shots, but that's the hand we're dealt. we got to make threes in order to stay in these ball games. Right now, there is no other option. 18-year-old freshman Piper Davis is just happy to be along for the ride. She's another walk-on who thought her basketball days ended after she left high school in Boise, Idaho, for college in Fort Worth, Texas. Coach Campbell said, make the most of it, because this never happens, and so... I just decided I'm going to play my best and go out there and have fun doing something that I thought was over and see where it goes. For Davis and the rest of the Horned Frogs, they're still finding out where it goes. For NPR News, I'm Bill Zebel in Fort Worth. Three years ago, during the height of COVID, filmmaker Sean Wong moved from New York back to California to live with his family, including his paternal grandmother, his Nai Nai, and his maternal grandmother, his Waipo. Nai Nai is Yi Yang Fui. And Wai Po is Zhang Lihua. The 29-year-old filmmaker wanted to preserve their unexpected time together. So 
he started filming. As NPR's Mandalit Del Barco reports, his short documentary is now nominated for an Oscar. Hello. That's Sean Wong on the phone with his two grandmas, aged 86 and 96, stars of his charming 17-minute documentary, Nai Nai and Waipo. They live together, they sleep in the same bed, they're kind of like best friends and roommates and soulmates in a way. (laughs) They really are the most pure form of joy in my life. I love them so much. I wanted to show people how amazing and beautiful and complex people like my grandmothers are. (laughs) Wong's film captures their everyday lives, waking up, reading the newspaper, exercising, chopping fruit. They sing, they dance, they reminisce, but also joke about farting and even mischievously arm wrestle. (laughs) Living with them and experiencing all this joy with them was sort of juxtaposed by a lot of anti-Asian hate crimes that were happening in our country at the time, but especially in the Bay Area, where I'm from, you know, seeing people like my grandmothers, people in our community, elderly people in our community being, you know, attacked. And it was just this extreme juxtaposition of seeing that in the news on my computer and then walking into the same room as them and then lighting me up with a smile. (laughs) (laughs) Wong's sister Jennifer Lee translates when I asked the grandmothers about being in the film. I hope that people who watch this film, um, they'll really respect the elderly in their lives. I hope all the older uh, generation people in the world can see this movie and just see that even in our you know, twilight years, our later years of life, that we can still find joy. For his first feature film, Didi, he asked his waipo to play the role of the strong-willed grandma. Hey, look at the camera. The semi-autobiographical story is set in the late 2000s. The main character fights with his sister, is mean to his mom, and has a crush on a girl. He chats on MySpace and starts videotaping his friends as they skateboard, something Wong himself used to do. Wong says he was inspired by filmmaker Spike Jones, who also started out making skateboarding videos, and he wanted to make his own coming-of-age movie. I remember being really inspired when mid-90s and 8th grade came out, because I loved both of those movies, like The 400 Blows, Stand By Me, Water Lilies, Ratcatcher, you know, the canon of movies about adolescence. I can't name the movie poster that has a 13-year-old Asian-American kid looking back at me. At the Sundance Film Festival this year, Didi won two awards and was soon acquired by Focus Features. Michelle Satter directs the Sundance Institute's artist programs. He has a unique voice. I think he's stylistically exciting. You know, his work is both funny and fresh, and it has an incredible energy to it. A few days after Didi premiered, Wong flew back to California to be with his grandmas as they watched Nai Nai and Waipo get nominated for the short documentary Oscar. Wong says the whole experience is still so surreal. Now he and his grandmothers are getting ready for the Oscars ceremony. They're taking me at this point. Like, I'm their plus one. You know? (laughs) Wong's Nai Nai and Waipo say they're over the moon. I'm happy beyond belief. I'm excited. I'm thankful to everyone, especially for their kindness to my grandson. 
<laughs> she said it feels like, you know, old grandmas are now turning into princesses. I couldn't even have imagined this. So I'm, I'm just really excited, really happy. And Wong says they'll be stunning on the red carpet. Mandalit del Barco, NPR News. This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Cunard, offering travelers an opportunity to voyage aboard Cunard's Queen Elizabeth to Alaska. Guests can explore ports and scenic cruising through Glacier Bay National Park with locally sourced cuisine. More at cunard.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. From Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool. Customers can see options and rates side by side. More at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR. Tonight should be a little milder than it has been other nights, around 30 degrees. In fact, it's pretty close to that right now. Tomorrow should inch to the low 40s. Sunny skies yet again, some fair weather clouds around, and a change in the weather for Friday. Rain off and on, highs in the mid-40s. So far, the weekend is looking sunny and dry once again. This is 90.9 WBUR, 34 degrees in Boston at 559. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara Restaurants and Food Truck, helping you rev up your corporate and private events. Online booking available at lacuchara.com. And Coolidge Corner Theater in Brookline, presenting new and classic films since 1933, with two new state-of-the-art theaters opening soon. Learn more at coolidge.org. I'm here now, host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The commander of the Coast Guard Cyber Command is concerned about a national security threat if any of the 200 Chinese-made cranes at U.S. ports are hacked. According to Admiral Jay Van, those ship-to-shore cranes could be vulnerable to Chinese exploitation because they can be operated remotely. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. More on the potential risk coming up. Supreme Court justices hear arguments in a key environmental case. Lawyers for some conservative states and businesses are trying to block a federal rule designed to limit ozone pollution. And a Birmingham, Alabama health system says it's putting on hold in vitro fertilization after the state Supreme Court ruled that frozen embryos have the same rights as children. This is WBUR. It's 601. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden's brother, James Biden, was on Capitol Hill today for a closed-door deposition as part of the House Republican-led impeachment inquiry. NPR's Ryan Lucas reports James Biden told lawmakers his brother Joe Biden has never had any involvement, direct or indirect, in his business ventures. James Biden appeared behind closed doors before the House Oversight and Judiciary Committees. In his opening statement to lawmakers, he said that he never asked his brother to take any official action on his behalf or anyone's behalf. 
James Biden's appearance on Capitol Hill comes as new information has emerged about the former FBI informant charged with fabricating claims about a Biden bribery scheme involving a Ukrainian energy company. In court papers, prosecutors say Alexander Smirnov has extensive contacts with Russian intelligence. They also say that Smirnov told authorities after his arrest that officials tied to Russian intelligence were involved in passing along a story about Hunter Biden. Democrats say the Smirnov indictment undercuts the Republicans' case for impeachment. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. Since blanket student loan debt relief was denied by the U.S. Supreme Court, the administration has been announcing various other actions. The latest effort applies to around 153,000 borrowers. Education Secretary Miguel Cordona says it's aimed at people who have been out of school for years but have been unable to pay off their loans. We're providing debt relief to people that need it the most. The folks that are targeted in this program are people who economically they could use the support. We're also addressing the root cause of the issue, which is the cost of college has gotten out of control. So we're increasing accountability measures to make sure that there's a good return on investment in higher education. Altogether, we're fixing a broken system. The new program affects federal student loan borrowers under the SAVE program who have been making payments for at least 10 years and borrowed $12,000 or less. A major medical center in Alabama says it will pause in vitro fertilization procedures in the wake of a state Supreme Court ruling that found frozen embryos are people. As Andrew Yeager reports from member station WBHM, the decision puts those accessing the technology in limbo. A spokesperson for the University of Alabama at Birmingham Health System says they are saddened for patients trying to use IVF to conceive. But they have to be mindful that patients and doctors could now be prosecuted or face lawsuits. They emphasize they will still do some fertility services, such as retrieving eggs, they just won't fertilize them. The ruling last Friday found that three couples whose embryos were destroyed at another Alabama fertility clinic could sue under the state's wrongful death law because frozen embryos are considered children under state law. While the ruling used religious language, it did not offer guidance in dealing with the wide-ranging implications of the decision. For NPR News, I'm Andrew Yeager in Birmingham, Alabama. A mixed close on Wall Street today. The Dow gained 48 points. The Nasdaq was down 49 points. The S&P lost 9 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. It's now up to the Governor's Council to decide whether to approve Governor Moore Healy's nominee to the state's highest court. The council heard today from supporters of Gabrielle Wolohogin. She has served on the state appeals court since 28, 2008. She's also a former long-term romantic partner of Governor Healy. Today, the governor told the council that relationship did not play a role in her decision. As I have said in the past... A personal relationship and my personal relationship with Judge Wolohogin should not deprive the people of Massachusetts of an outstanding SJC justice. Wolohogin said she's aware of the optics of being nominated by a former partner. She pointed to the support her nomination received, though, from her colleagues in the judicial system. And I realized that their trust and support that if I were elevated, They would be happy to have me review their work. Struck me as the greatest trust and endorsement that I could receive. The governor's council could vote on the nomination as soon as next week. Elected officials in Milton will meet later this month to discuss the town's loss of funding for a local infrastructure project. Governor Maura Healey said today that Milton will not receive a $140,000 state grant to repair a degraded seawall. It's because the town of Milton is out of compliance with the new Zoning Act, meant to increase housing near the MBTA. 
Voters rejected the zoning plan at the polls last week. Mike Zulis is chair of the select board. He said the state's move is misguided. If we are trying to work towards a solution, taking this kind of action doesn't help. It doesn't help our collaboration uh, with the state, which the state had pledged to do, and it doesn't help us move forward to try to get a workable solution. The town manager said in a statement he's disappointed to lose out on the funding, but said he's looking forward to working on next steps in the new zoning process. Water and sewer rates for Massachusetts Water Resources Authority customers may be heading upward. It filed a plan today for the fiscal year that begins in July. On average, customers living in communities that are fully served by the authority are expected to pay about $19 a year more for water and sewer. However, people in communities only partially served could see a smaller hike or even see their rates go down. And drivers in Massachusetts racked up more than one million traffic violations last year. That's a nearly 40 percent increase since 2020. State data show the uptick is mostly because law enforcement is giving out more warnings. The warnings account for more than half the violations. The state report did not indicate why warnings have increased so much. In the forecast, partly cloudy tonight, settling at about 30 degrees. Tomorrow, clouds and sunshine both moving into the low 40s. Showers move in for Friday. Should be a little bit milder. Temperatures in the mid-40s. 34 degrees now in Boston at 6.07. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Jarl and Pamela Mohn. Focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. In a few minutes, we will take you to Spain, where a man who was recently found riddled with bullets and run over by his own car may have been a Russian helicopter pilot who defected to Ukraine. But first, we're going to start this hour with news from the Supreme Court. Today, the justices heard arguments in a big environmental case. Lawyers for businesses and a group of red states are trying to block a federal rule designed to limit ozone pollution. The Biden administration and a group of other states say that those limits help save lives. NPR's Carrie Johnson is back from the Supreme Court where she was listening in and joins us now to explain this case. Hey, Carrie. Hi, Elsa. So tell us more about this federal rule. Like, what does it specifically do? It's called the good neighbor rule, and that's because it's designed to protect the health of people in states where pollution flows downwind across state lines. That can be hundreds of miles away from the pipelines or smokestacks that are emitting those chemicals. The Environmental Protection Agency issued the rule last year, but it's being challenged by Ohio, Indiana, and West Virginia, along with companies and trade groups. They have a lot of complaints. Mostly, they say the rule was supposed to cover 23 states, but right now it covers only about half of them because of different lawsuit lawsuits around the country. Wow. Okay. So how did the Biden administration defend this so-called good neighbor plan? <laughs> it's not just the Biden administration and the solicitor general's office. This is really a dispute among states, states with high levels of pollution and states where some of the chemicals float and where people are breathing smog. Mm. Here's Judith Vale, who argued for New York and those downwind states. She said for all the complaints, this rule is in force in a lot of places and that it's working. And the rule right now continues to provide substantial and meaningful benefits to the downwind sources. And that's because upwind pollution is not evenly distributed as it goes downwind. So the downwind states that generally get a lot of pollution 
from the 11 states in the rule now still stand to get a lot of benefits. Vale says it's not just about health benefits for people in places like New York or Connecticut or Wisconsin. By limiting pollution from these red states, it's easier for the other states to meet their own air quality standards. Right. Okay, so I also understand that this case comes from what's called the emergency docket, which is something we've talked a lot about in the past few years. How did that part of the proceedings come into play at the arguments this it took, morning? Yeah, it took up a huge part of the arguments, Elsa. This really is only the third time in about 50 years that the justices heard arguments in a case at this early a stage. Wow. The lower appeals court has not ruled on the substance of this dispute. Ohio and the businesses raced to the Supreme Court by arguing they were suffering irreparable harm. Basically, they talk about the cost of permitting and complying with the good neighbor rule. Several of the liberal justices raised questions about that today, though. Here's Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson. And what I'm a little concerned about is that really your argument is just boiling down to we think we have a meritorious claim and we don't want to have to follow the law while we're challenging it. And I don't understand why every single person who is challenging a rule doesn't have that same uh, set of circumstances. Another justice, Elena Kagan, said the burden is really on the red states to prove they need to pause the rule now. And that's a lot of hoops to jump through, she said. Okay, and I understand that this case is still at an early stage, but did you get any hint from the justices whether they think this EPA rule is reasonable? It wasn't clear from the questions today where all of the justices stood, but Justice Brett Kavanaugh shared a lot about his thinking. He said he thought both the upwind and downwind states were suffering harm. Both sides in the case made arguments about the public interest. Over the past two years, the EPA has lost a lot at the Supreme Court in high-stakes litigation, and the justices have been skeptical in recent history. That is NPR's Carrie Johnson. Thank you so much, Carrie. My pleasure. The Biden administration is worried about a national security threat posed by cranes at U.S. ports. Yes, cranes, you know, the huge machines that hoist goods off ships so they can be transported and sold around the country. Well, these cranes were made in China. I'm going to let our cybersecurity correspondent, Jenna McLaughlin, pick up the thread from here. Hey, Jenna. Hey. So what is the problem with these cranes? So according to the White House, there are over 200 cranes in U.S. ports that were manufactured in the People's Republic of China. That's actually the vast majority, nearly 80 percent of cranes. Uh, according to Admiral Jay Van, who's part of the Coast Guard Cyber Command, those ship-to-shore cranes specifically could be vulnerable to Chinese exploitation, particularly because they can be operated remotely. The Coast Guard is going to be inspecting all of those cranes. They're about halfway done. Uh, then they'll be requiring minimum standards for security compliance. For broader context, the U.S. national security officials have really been concerned about Chinese hackers infiltrating critical infrastructure. They're trying to get an advantage if there was a war or a conflict in the region. Uh, these officials say that Chinese hackers have been burrowing into U.S. infrastructure for the past five years or so. Okay, so I said the Biden administration is worried about this. What are they doing about it? They're doing a couple things. Besides the specific effort targeting the threat to the cranes, there's a new executive order. It essentially gives the Coast Guard more power over the ports. Now they'll be able to preemptively step in and investigate potential cyber threats to U.S. vessels or respond if there's an attack. The Coast Guard's also putting out proposed minimum guidelines on cybersecurity standards, as well as requirements for reporting cyber attacks, which is modeled off safety requirements. The White House says that cyber attacks could pose as big a threat to the port as storms, for example. 
They'll get feedback on those guidelines from the public before those actually go into effect. The government's also investing $20 billion into new secure technology at the ports over the next five years, which could be used to build cranes and other technology in America rather than relying on these ones built in China. Huh. And, and Jenna, I know, I mean, port security has been a, a priority going back to 9-11. Did something new just happen that is prompting all this concern in this executive order now? Yeah. So like I mentioned, U.S. national security officials have been really scared about the Chinese hacking campaigns into U.S. infrastructure. The first example that they revealed was about a year ago when a Chinese hacking group they call Volt Typhoon had broken into U.S. infrastructure in Guam, which has important military significance based on its location in the Pacific. They haven't given us too many more specific details, but they've said they found these hackers in other places like U.S. communication networks and other critical infrastructure. Meanwhile, there's other examples. You know, a major Japanese port was recently hit by a criminal cyber attack. Hackers held it for ransom for two whole days and shipments were totally halted. White House cybersecurity advisor Ann Neuberger explained why the ports are so important during a call with reporters last night. She said that the ports pump $5.4 trillion into the American economy. That's over 90% of overseas trade. And the ports are also vital for airlift capabilities for the military. If there was a major disruption at the ports, even short term, it could be disastrous. Huh. And so in the meantime, what's going to happen to all these cranes? <laughs> yeah. So unlike how the U.S. government has had this big campaign to get rid of Chinese technology like Huawei from our communications infrastructure, in this case, they aren't planning on getting rid of the cranes. The White House seems to think that it's a risk that they can manage. But the investment part of this package will allow them to put money into more U.S. manufactured technology in the future, just so we're not relying so heavily on these vulnerable cranes. NPR cybersecurity correspondent Jenna McLaughlin. Thank you, Jenna. Thank you. A man shot dead near Alicante in Spain last week is believed to have been a Russian helicopter pilot who defected to Ukraine last year. Ukrainian intelligence has since confirmed his death. Miguel Macias reports from Spain. This all started with the call from a neighbor to the police. The neighbor at the beginning, he thought that the man had been hit by a car. Jose Bautista is an investigative journalist based in Madrid. The Spanish civil guard arrived at the scene and confirmed that a man had been shot to death on the ramp of the community garage of an apartment building in the seaside resort of Villajoyosa. At the beginning, they thought it was a gangster story. They thought he was from Ukraine. Bautista says the Spanish civil guard could not confirm officially the identity of the dead man, but... We had access to different police sources who confirmed that the murder man is actually Maxim Kushminov. Maxim Kushminov. Last August, Kushminov flew a Russian helicopter into Ukrainian territory and handed himself in. But this was no act of improvisation. Ukrainian intelligence said the defection was the result of a six-month operation. This is Kuzminov speaking at a press conference last September in Ukraine. Kuzminov said he defected because he objected the war. The deal between him and the Ukrainian intelligence involved the reward of half a million dollars, protection for his family, and new documents. He could have stayed in Ukraine, authorities say, but he didn't. Then, last Tuesday, the body of a man who had been shot multiple times to death, then run over by his own car, was found. The car was located later, burned down near the area. Ukrainian intelligence have since confirmed the individual as Maxim Kushminov. There has been no official comment from Moscow, but the head of Russia's intelligence agency told the press, quote, 
This traitor and criminal became a moral corpse at the very moment when he planned his dirty and terrible crime. Shortly after his defection last year, Russian TV carried a new segment where a special forces officer of the military intelligence made this chilling prediction. The order was received. Its execution is a matter of time. I do trust the work of Guardia Civil. The work of the investigators will somehow clarify what, what exactly happened and who killed this man. That's Jose Bautista again. He says all the signs point to the Russians, but proving who did this may be difficult. The area where Kuzminov lived before he was found dead sits along the Spanish eastern Mediterranean coast and is popular amongst Ukrainian immigrants, many of them refugees from the war. Spain has welcomed more than 180,000 refugees since Russia launched their war against Ukraine. The news of Kozhinov's death has shocked the Ukrainian community there. Many of them are now in fear that what seems like a safe haven in Spain no longer feels that way. Miguel Macias, NPR News, Seville, Spain. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A private company called Intuitive Machines is attempting to land a spacecraft on the moon tomorrow. Join us tomorrow morning at 90.9 WBUR to hear what it's going to take to stick the first U.S. moon landing in decades. Start your day here tomorrow. The Dow and S&P both had modest gains today, up a little over a tenth of a percent by the final bell. NASDAQ closed lower for a third day. It fell three-tenths of a percent. Wentworth Institute of Technology is planning to expand its campus in Boston. Today it announced plans for two new residence halls that would add nearly 900 beds. It also wants to replace an existing dorm on Huntington Avenue with a 13-story building for 500 students. There are also plans for a new academic building and an athletic field house. The forecast is next. WBUR supporters include Showcase Cinemas and the Museum of African American History with a screening of Toni Morrison, The Pieces I Am. Info at showcasecinemas.com and Bridgewater State University, ranked 18th in Massachusetts on the Wall Street Journal's 2024 Best Colleges in America list. Bridgew.edu. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. Shows some clouds rolling in for tonight, a little bit milder than it has been, about 30 for a low. We're almost at that right now. Tomorrow, sunshine yet again. A few clouds around highs could break 40 degrees. 34 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. It's 621. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies solve food from employee meal plans to on-site staffing with corporate accounts, nationwide restaurant coverage, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. From Your Part-Time Controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your Part-Time Controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person at yptc.com NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The University of Alabama at Birmingham Health System said today it is pausing in vitro fertilization procedures. That is because the state Supreme Court has ruled that frozen embryos have the same rights as children. So destroying an embryo could have legal consequences. Following this story is WBHM managing editor Andrew Yeager. Hey there. 
Good to be here. Tell me more about this announcement today. Yeah, well, we should start by pointing out that UAB is a major public health care provider in Alabama. So the fact that they're pausing IVF procedures is very significant. It'll affect a lot of people. Um, but that aside, uh, in a statement, UAB says that they're saddened for patients who are trying to use this technology to conceive, but they have to be mindful that patients and doctors could be prosecuted or face lawsuits for what prior to Friday were just standard fertility procedures. Now, they emphasize that they will still do some services, such as uh, retrieving eggs. They just won't fertilize them. Okay, and just walk us through how we got here, how Alabama's uh, state Supreme Court ended up ruling on this. Yeah, this case stems from a, a mobile fertur- uh, fertility clinic in a hospital. A patient there somehow got into a storage area where there were frozen embryos, took them out of the freezer and dropped them. Three families whose embryos were destroyed in that incident sued under Alabama's wrongful death law. Now, a lower court said that they couldn't do that, but the Alabama Supreme Court in an eight to one ruling said, yes, they could because frozen embryos are people under state law. The ruling used a lot of religious language. It talked about the sanctity of life. Um, it actually referred to the frozen embryos as extra uterine children. Um, but what it didn't do is offer any guidance or any path forward given the wide ranging implications of this decision. It kind of kicked things over to state lawmakers to decide if they wanna make any changes or clarifications to state law. Uh, for instance, who actually is covered by the state wrongful death law. Well, indeed. And speaking of Alabama state lawmakers, what what are they saying? How are they reacting to the ruling? Well, we spent today calling lawmakers and really received very little reaction um, from those who did get back to us. We were told either they had no comment or that they wanted to brush up on the subject before they spoke publicly. And that really seems to point to just how sweeping and complicated the fallout from this ruling is. Uh, medical groups, though, have expressed concern. A statement from the American Society for Reproductive Medicine called it a quote, medically and scientifically unfounded decision. It goes on to say that modern fertility care would be unavailable under the ruling and that the ruling should not go unchecked. And what about just ordinary people? What is the conversation on this today in Alabama? Yeah, it's kind of hard to tell. I would say part of that is because it's still sinking in. Uh, People are wrestling with what this may mean. Um, But it's helpful to remember that overall, Alabama is a state that's very supportive of anti-abortion policies. Uh, In 2018, voters actually amended the state constitution to give rights to fetuses. The state bans abortion at any point in pregnancy. There is no exception for rape or incest. But how those beliefs overlap with, with in vitro fertilization, that really remains to be seen especially if other clinics decide to pause fertility procedures or even shut down. Uh, There are just a lot of questions that people on multiple sides are trying to sift through and really not much clarity at the moment. Well, thank you today for your reporting. We're grateful. Happy to do it. That is Andrew Yeager with WBHM in Birmingham, Alabama. An estimated 42% of adults in the U.S. know someone who died from a drug overdose. That number is one of many in a RAND Corporation study out today, which demonstrates the sweeping effects of the drug overdose crisis. Reporter Martha Biebinger from WBUR reports. That 42% figure translates to 125 million American adults. 
It means that in parts of the South and in New England, where overdose deaths are particularly high, nearly every other person you meet likely has at least one personal story to tell. You doing the potatoes too? Or? The potatoes, potatoes too, then next the uh, apples. I was already scheduled for a shift at the Brookline Food Pantry yesterday, so while volunteers packed bags for delivery to shut-ins, I asked, did they know someone who died? Probably there have been four people that I went to high school with that have died of an overdose. Uh, cousin's friend. Just a month and a half ago. I can think of one in particular that's been recent. Probably more because it's been many years. Ariel Chernin, Liam Hafter, and Lori Day were not startled to learn that so many Americans have been touched by an overdose death. This shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. It's been Everyone's seen it coming, and here it is. Chernin grew up in this town next to Boston. She's reminded of the people who are gone as she drives around the community. I think it's shocking when you know someone like from childhood or growing up. It makes you think back to signs or would you have ever predicted or those types of things. The RAND study is based on a survey of just over 2,000 adults. The results, published in the American Journal of Public Health, estimate more than 40 million Americans report at least a short-term impact on their mental or physical health while grieving an overdose death. 12 million adults continue to mourn a devastating loss. Study co-author Allison Athey says there's very little help available for these millions of close friends and family members. We're not talking about this population of people who are really struggling as part of our broader conversation about the overdose crisis. These folks really have been left behind. Athey says there's no formal outreach to avoid triggering more overdoses as there would be after a suicide, for example. These families are not directed to clinics that offer counseling, medication if needed, or guidance. There's usually no coordinated response from a school, workplace, or community. Athey sees two reasons why. One is that most of the time and money is, understandably, focused on trying to save lives. The other is the view that families mourning a drug-related death are not worthy of attention. They tell me horror stories about people saying that the person who died deserved to die because they were a drug user and that it was inevitable that they died by overdose and sort of belittling the survivor who's left behind and who's grieving for the person who they loved. Leslie Gomes Preston has heard some of those cruel remarks about her daughter Kiara, who died after an overdose in 2016. Some parents cope by hiding their grief. Not Gomes Preston, who joined a grief support group for parents like her. I love to talk about it because to me, I mean, it proves she was here. And I really believe that I'll think of things at the right moment and the right time. It's, it's her. Gomes Preston says she can picture 20 or more of Kiara's high school classmates from Cape Cod who've also suffered a fatal overdose. For NPR News, I'm Martha Biebinger in Boston. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is WBUR. The men's 2014 Boston Marathon champion Meb Kapleski says he's running the race again this year. He's the first American man to have won the race in more than three decades. He hasn't run Boston since 2018. The Bruins begin a four-game road trip out west tonight as they visit the Edmonton Oilers. Boston women's professional hockey team will host Ottawa tonight at the Songa Center in Lowell. 
and the New England Revolution are playing tonight in the first round of the CONCACAF Champions Cup in Panama. This is 90.9 WBUR, 34 degrees now in Boston. The time is 6.30. WBUR supporters include Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis. Become a certified psychoanalyst and earn your doctorate in psychoanalysis. Better understand how you can help your patients develop emotionally fulfilling lives. All prior master's degrees qualify for psychoanalytic training. Now accepting applications for fall. bgsp.edu and H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society. Harry Christophers returns to lead H&H as conductor laureate this weekend at Symphony Hall. Visit handelandhaydn.org.